everybody. Welcome to the Billy Club. The show we take a look at the adventures of Marvel's Crimson Crusader. Well, he's less of a Crimson Crusader and more of a yellow-bellied fear man right now. <laughs> yeah, with, with a little bit of like a feisty boxer boy thrown yes. on in there. Yes. Well, I'm Nico. That's Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Tori Sheehan. You can find me on Instagram at SMTori and on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan. That's Tori with an I. Now, we both have very different levels of Daredevil fandom, but we are both huge Daredevil fans. And we have been dying to do this podcast together forever. So if your level of experience is you've been training at Fogwells since you were five, or if your level of experience is this is the first time you're picking up anything Daredevil, this is a place you are welcome, right? And oh, yeah. I couldn't be more excited to do it uh, than with doing it with you, Tori. This is such a pleasure and such an exciting, finally dream come true thing. It's just so much fun to get to have someone who knows it so well to kind of guide me through this and tell me like where to not put too much of my attention. The first uh, 166 issues. But yeah. Yeah. beyond that, we're actually here to talk about Daredevil from the beginning. Now that of course kicks off with Daredevil number one, The Man Without Fear was sort of a title moniker and yet kind of the title, it's really hard to tell where that became part of the core title of the series. Now that first issue was delivered to us in April of 1964. I say us like I was there. Oh, I was right? definitely there. I'm eternal. Oh. What am I going to oh. be? <laughs> I love that you can be Cersei. I'm all about it, right? And <laughs> so that makes this written by the incomparable Stan Lee, who was, of course, responsible for a vast majority of my childhood for which Chris Claremont isn't responsible. Now, this was illustrated by Bill Everett, whose name will not come up too often in the course of our discussions, but you he's know, busy. He's busy. Very and busy. The letters are by Sam Rosen, who will appear as Sam Rosen, S. Rosen. Uh, he's going to get some fun adjectives in there, that, that Stan Lee way of doing things. But Tori, <laughs> I had read this issue well before I even knew you personally, and you still managed to transform this issue for me the first time we ever talked about it with your identification of the cover being the first moment of damnation for this title early on that like it says Spider-Man as big as it says the man without fear and like Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four take up half the fucking page. He's barely, he's barely on his own cover. And I can understand being like, how do we pull people in? Let's give them what they already know. But at the same time, I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is like at all. I'm not, all I know is He's prop. They want me to think he's just like Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. Which, what a weird identity to cross-section him with. If you were like, he's yeah. just like Spider-Man and the Human Torch from the Fantastic Four, I'd be like, banging, I'm in. But they're like, he's just like this teenage boy and also this sort of found family of scientists and also an arrogant boy. And I'm like... <laughs> I mean, I get, I mean, now that you said the word found family, my brain's like, well, no, actually, I guess Nelson and Murdoch kind of is a found family. And we spend so much time of him like training as a teenager that it must be very much like watching Peter Parker become Spider-Man. But okay. like, as an adult, Matt Murdoch is none of those things. None of those at things. All. And he would actually prefer to be alone. Oh, he really would. <laughs> Okay, now one of the things that I'd never noticed before doing the research for this episode with you, 
for this was okay so let's check out that bottom right corner of the found family on that cover right <laughs> so in this issue you will meet the most unusual hero of all matt murdoch and you know what i'm gonna give them this sure daredevil's unusual in that he's blind and he's all ping ping but i want to point out that matt murdoch even without that bang and radar sense is still an unlikely hero because he uses the law to help save the day so this is, this is definitely on par i guess with like superman also being an investigative journalist <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah like like you your day job is also like saving the world because to be honest i don't think wayne enterprises actually does that much saving of people as much as it does saving of sense okay. um <laughs> but i could be wrong i could be wrong um well, now I, I need to not get it wrong here. I want to point out that she is the gorgeous Karen Page. Oh, which... yeah. I just, well, yeah, that's all she's going to be for a while. She's just real yeah. pretty. She's real, real pretty. pretty. She's transformatively pretty. You know, I, I clearly remember her being different kinds of era appropriate pretty as she transitions through the title on her way, right? But the thing that, that, that just daredevil uppercutted me right in the gut is fun loving he gets foggy it's in quotations it's like they know what we're in for for the first 70 issues of foggy it and is he's also like he's the side profile which is like as the head turns away from the viewer it becomes less and less uh likely for you to empathize with the character wow, so the fact that he's like half turned away makes you be like well, who is this guy? Like, why he's called fun loving, but like he doesn't have a goofy smile on. I I don't know why he's fun loving. Well, I, don't get I it. can't wait another three hundred issues till he's guts Nelson. But that's you know that's quite a ways off. For now, we've got fun loving Foggy Nelson, and it's so interesting because like you know Matt short for Matthew, okay. You know Karen short for Karen complains about his blindness, okay. So, but there's really no good way to put foggy on the cover with his name franklin there as well and yeah. foggy is his identifier so it's sort of this weird thing where like because he's foggy he's sort of automatically kind of the frumpy friend and there's not much he can do about that for the next 60 years it is really interesting that they give matt murdoch the frumpy friend because I guess it's to highlight that he's still smooth and suave and likable by the ladies, even though he's blind and uh, blind, which is a which is just like oh my goodness, a Cyrano level of offense. Absolutely. But, um, <laughs> um, so I've always I've always it's always struck me that he's got a bumbling sidekick when they could have just given him someone who's uh, an equal, quote unquote, to Matt Murdock. Now, you know, speaking of things that they treat as the equal to Matt Murdock, it continues right away on that inside page. That front page fucking kills me. Now, I know we're talking about the 1960s and the 1970s, which is the era of the fronts piece. And like, I love me a good fronts piece. Bill Sienkiewicz feeds an entire country with the goodness that is his fronts pieces, yeah. right? But this one kind of fucks me silly. And here's the thing about it. First of all, 
the biggest thing on this page is the phrase, the origin of Daredevil, which is off the bat, a questionable choice. If your presentation is 40% oversized letters, you didn't really have enough for your page. No, no. And also you redrew the same image from the front page. The same one. It's the same fucking one. Like today, in by fewer colors. Standards, in fewer colors. Fewer colors. <laughs> Today's standards, we would be like, that is absolutely a trace and grab. Like that is, they just used the same image from the cover. But speaking of using the same image from the cover, further down, <laughs> they fucking still find a way to put Spider-Man on this cover. In case you missed it, I also want to point out that the Fantastic Four are on that cover. They are. So this is one of those things, like the top is still spinning and I don't know how many layers this goes deep, but very clearly we're operating under the assumption that Marvel has some sort of perspective going into this motherfucker that you're going to only want to buy this if you feel like you missed out on Amazing Spider-Man. And I don't know what to do with that. Clearly, I love my boy. So I know. I know. He's a good guy. He's um, a good guy. Wasn't, wasn't this also like a bi-monthly issue? Like it showed up every, uh, every other month? So Daredevil does definitely have the spottiest track record on monthly sales throughout his career. And early on, yeah, not only was this book late, it was in fact delayed. And that's why there were so many penciler changes early on. You know, that kind of pencil turnover really isn't befitting of a Stan Lee 1964 era book. He had a really consistent set of rhythms with people, you know, he and Kirby did everything. And by he and Kirby did everything, I mean, Kirby did a lot. Like that's not me coming for Stan Lee, but I am in recognition of the work that a penciler does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kirby wasn't just making comics. He was defining comics for the next three generations of comic readers. It'd be like trying to undervalue George Perez. I mean, it, it would be insane, right? right? So that's nothing against Wolfman either. So anyway, I, I really do agree with you that this was during a time where Daredevil is not shipping regularly. I mean, he is kind of, you know, he's a romance title. Let's start with he's a romance kind of meets crime noir book. And that's kind of still at the core of it. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel that, especially as we go into like the the second issue is very much a rom-com. And we'll talk about that when we get to that episode. <laughs> when we get there, right? <laughs> now, so another thing that I think is really important is, you know, Tori, one of the things I love is the way you came to Daredevil. You were brought in by the exquisite Netflix show. I just want to be clear. This might be my canon, but that maybe has a little bit more to do with Elytra than anything else. Right. right? So... <laughs> I love that you came in from the exquisite Netflix show and you came into this world of super heroics. And I think my first question for you is like, how did you feel about the yellow duds? Like I grew up with this like, oh, Beast used to look human, Angel used to have soft wings and Daredevil used to have a yellow costume. Now I thought all of those things were the same amount of time. No, no, no. It's like Angel had his normal wings for 20 years, Beast looked human for 10 years, Daredevil wore this costume for six issues. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. I was very confused by why he was in yellow first. Um, I thought it was an interesting choice considering like yellow is the color of fear and like 
lack of courage. So I just assumed that it was, it had to have been some kind of like early 60s, like coloring, inking concern about contrast. So that would have been my guess. I mean, if you think about it, they really were kind of at, they were plum fuck out of colors, man. And like, yeah. you know, Spider-Man had the reds and the blues mm-hmm. and the X-Men were rocking some form of blue and yellow, blue and white. You know, there was some consistency to putting them in kitty colors, right? You know, the Hulk was gray, but gray looks like shit. So they, back then, I mean, it looked like grain. It was so bad. It just looked like the black didn't show up right on the page. Mm -hmm. So they transitioned him from gray to green pretty quickly at that, much like Daredevil. I think Daredevil just got the luck of the draw that yellow was the shitty color left. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, considering everything, the fact that they kept like the onesie red, I think is what's going to really resonate with people, that big red D. Not even a double D yet, which is no. which is going to be, I think that's the, the last iteration of the yellow outfit does have a double D. I've been tracking. <laughs> I love that. So. <laughs> now, you know, one of the things that really makes me laugh, smile, and happy is there had long been a real problem, and there still is, and it is not taken care of yet, you know, and it's the incredible tireless work of brilliant women creators and comics and you know the tireless efforts of the hawkeye initiative right Mm -hmm. and i have long maintained that they kind of pose daredevil very kind of femininely and i think it really is from issue one he kind of does have these very uh, kind of poses and i think it's one of the things that as a young man as a young queer man who was you know chronically ill that was one of the things that drew me to this character. I didn't have to be super buff. Now, I mean, obviously I've changed some priorities since then, but you know, I, I was like, I can be kind of average bodied and still be a superhero. Cause look, Daredevil's got hips for a man. He does. Oh, yeah. he is, he is, he does not skip leg, leg day at all, ever. Yeah. No, mm-mm, mm-mm. So. Um, I actually have a question as we move on to page quote unquote two. Is there a reason <laughs> why we have Fogwell's Jim and Foggy Nelson? So, okay. Content creator, uh, best friend numero uno, and husband extraordinaire, Kevo really is famous for always wearing uh, kind of like a matching Daredevil look to me. Like we're at a convention. Uh, I'll be in my Fogwell's jersey and he'll be in my hell's kitchen hoodie mm-hmm. and it's that sort of thing and one day he said to me wait a minute is foggy's name not fogwell and i was like no <laughs> it's and he was like what do you mean and i'm like his name is franklin and his his dad isn't the owner of fogwells and kevin was just like i am betrayed and i hate this and I think it's sort of the way ultimately the Bat and Superman share Martha's. I think Daredevil's life is just full of fog and it's a metaphor. Oh God. I mean, I can't. uh, I just. 
How do you feel about this initial sort of, you know, it's, it's not a good sequence, but it yeah. does set up, it sets up why the yellow suit is valuable because in an otherwise sort of gymnastic-y circus of crime kind of fight sequence, Daredevil I mean, pops on the page. Oh yeah, you can always see him. He can't see you, but you can see him. <laughs> I and... love it. So speaking of people it's hard to take seriously, this early Daredevil fight is really indicative of a problem that Daredevil is going to have for a decade, which is it's tough to make these villains stick. The Fixer as his first villain, you know, the, the Avengers' first villain is fucking Loki. Yep. And the X-Men's first villain is fucking Magneto. And, you know, Captain America's first fucking villain is Hitler. Yeah. And Daredevil's is a guy with a cholesterol problem. For me, coming from the Daredevil series on Netflix, I was very shocked that the fixer wasn't like some form of Wilson Fisk. Uh, it could have been if Wilson Fisk even existed yet, which I'm told he does not. He does not. Now, of course, I am a I am too big a Wilson fan, but Wilson is going to go on to have 19 total appearances in the Marvel Universe before ultimately turning up in the pages of Frank Miller's Daredevil in the 1970s. So we will be covering and discussing all appearances of Wilson Fisk leading up to his time in Daredevil because I, there's 20. Just fuck it. Just do, do it. it. We'll Just throw them in. Just fuck it. I don't care. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, Daredevil we're gonna wouldn't care either. He would read them too. He would. He would because he he'd be like, "What is that guy doing? What's up with Ele him?" Electra wouldn't bother reading it. She would find someone to read it and then tell her all about it and then leave him on the side of the road. Oh, but we have boy. so long till Electra. I'm also very. Uh, it, it really stood out to me this time reading through how much Daredevil is just head and shoulders above these fights. Like, these are not even, like, I'm not even vaguely concerned that he's not, not going to win this. Not even yeah. close. Agreed. And it's going to stay that way for a while. Like, I'm not concerned for him almost ever at all. I agree. Especially in that first, you know, really not to jump ahead. And we're going to get there because we're talking about these in story order. We're treating each mm -hmm. story as its own creature, right? So when we get to a three-parter, that's a story. Each individual one-parter along the way is a story. Now, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the first time I really feel like Daredevil is like, fuck, is the Kazar stuff. Mm. I think that's the first time where he's really outmatched. He's in a foreign element. He's not really aware of his surroundings. And we'll get to it. But, yeah. You know, one of the things about this issue that is so fascinating is this issue is really gonna somehow go from 22 pretty standard noirish pages to sometimes six issue miniseries and you know retellings for 30 40 50 fucking years before this all gets heavily revised and you know the age mat gets blinded sometimes moves up it moves down but the core of this block of issue one that sort of page seven to page i don't know 12 that yeah. whole kind of he gets blinded you learn about his father who was a boxer i'll admit because of the 
fluid relationship of the narrative with age, some of the, I'm going to be the buffest six-year-old, which I don't fucking understand <laughs> what Stan was thinking. <laughs> I just, he, I, is this what kids in the 60s did? It, because I know there was that like, don't be a 90 pound weakling, try this powder Charles atlas which yeah. I mean, that did ultimately have a massive impact on me so like <laughs> i get it but this is a weird bit of inclusive fantasy that mm-hmm. i think is interesting and you know we still see it coming from marvel for about 30 years with kids that can transform into adults so i do understand the idea of putting the power of strength and ability in a child's hands right Ultimately, though, I do feel that Daredevil is like the old man comic. I do think that it is the least child oriented, not child friendly. I just don't like if 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 Daredevil in the 1960s was rated PG-13, it's for adult themes, not violence. And that's I think like, I don't know. I just think these six pages in some ways tell it the best because it tells it real fucking fast. How do you feel about this interpretation of the Daredevil origin, which is such a core central part of the narrative of the character? I think that it plays out sort of like every, it it feels like he gets his superpowers from realizing that he can work out as well as read books. Because because like that, because the montage is there. The montage is not after he's blind. The montage is after he's like, I can fight back. And so to me, like, it's the superpower is realizing that he can throw a punch just like his dad. And so that to me is the kind of kind of the real origin story of being like, I can be smart and strong. And then the accident just sort of reiterates the whole thing and gives us some turtles later. So I'm 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 into it. It does happen very, very fast. And, you know, like, so when we talk about the ways that these characters are influenced, defined, reinterpreted, and imagined by their parentage, right? Not to, like, because, you know, I'm really lucky my dad got me into comics, so my only real daddy issues involve bags and boards, right? Now, you know, Daredevil, though, is a character defined by his daddy issues forever when I think about how Bruce Wayne is defined by his father in a cultural understanding it's he became an industrialist like his father when I think about the ways how is Superman defined by his father culturally at least it's by the notion that Superman is on a mission of peace because his father sent him and then he was raised by salt of the earth Jonathan Kent so that other father figure raised him to be a good man Mm -hmm. and if you do happen to know that Batlin Jack Murdoch my you know fucking favorite worst father of the year best father of the year hybrid if you know he's a boxer I don't know that you even know how much he influences Matt as you know into the kind of like fucked up vigilante he becomes I think I think the father that really fucks up Matt Murdock is the capital F father of God and the guilt and the Catholicism 
that really is his father issues. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank That's you. I really... I have an I have an English degree. Man, <laughs> and does it show? Does it show? Um, but but yeah, like to me that's where it's at that Matt um he his dad like forces him it's like you're gonna study you're gonna be better than your old man you're gonna make something of yourself you're gonna get out of these streets blah 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 and then what forces Matt to like continue to be who he is and live this double life is partially to make his dad proud but partially like just this eating up inside of like what does it mean that i'm punching people for what's right like is that right shouldn't i be following what my dad says shouldn't i be taking the higher path of peaceful work and i think that 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 has more to do with his catholic guilt than it does with what his dad because i do feel like if his dad was alive and found out that matt was like a vigilante i think he'd be like well, at least you still got your law degree. He would find a way to kind of, because that's even, that's such the core of Jack. And that's why so many writers have returned to Jack over the years. And not just in the pages of Daredevil, but in the pages of Batlin Jack Murdoch, a miniseries that came out a number of years ago. It is so significant that Jack is like, I'm still a good man, even though I'm breaking the law because my son is good. Mm -hmm. If you can make good, you are good. And that's one of the things that so drives these characters through their narrative in a way that I feel like, it's why I'm maybe not annoyed by the hyper shorthand that this issue tries to get me to accept. The things that really do kill me are number one, the the incident resulting in Matt's accident barely features Matt in the sequence of the action. I understand that he is a figure in the story here, but he certainly doesn't have anything beyond the initial heroic agency. The number one thing I notice on this page is Daddy Murdoch looking like, fuck what? That chest, buddy. He looks good. Yes, this is definitely the most Jack-centric version of this origin story I think we're ever going Beautiful. to get. Yeah. I really do think that. Um, I also think that um, this gives us a lot of very specific like time dating and character dating for like, your mom is dead. You are 15 when this happens. <laughs> I, uh, you are I 15 going an orphan. Yeah, I die right before you graduate law school which is the only college you go to because somehow in the 60s you can just skip undergrad good good I guess, good for you sure, you're a well-prepared lawyer sure but like it's just very like hit the things hit the things we get one image of matt in the in the uh in the hospital room then it's just matt being like me and my braille books are gonna keep studying dad good luck tonight kind of stuff which and, you know, one of the things that blows my mind, are we really meant to believe that altogether the exploration of the execution of Batlin Jack Murdoch is a crack? Is that really it? That gunshot noise is the execution 
of Matt's father, which sets the narrative forward in such an explicit way. There's like fucking pinups of the goddamn Waynes being mowed down in the street like animals, right? There are beautiful pictorial tributes to yep. goddamn Uncle Ben, Uncle ben dying Bucky. in Spider-Man's arms. But yep. Daredevil's dad dies in darkness, which I have to wonder if is a reflection of Matt's inability to see the loss of his father or if it's a reflection of Marvel style, which was write a plot, let the artist draw it however they want, and then the writer reassembles it in their own personal order. And so I gotta wonder if this was at some point all in order, rearranged, and you know, that's what said Jack's dead crack. I mean, but then we also get a very uh, untimely end of his fight against the guy who killed him. So, like, it's all just sort of going out with a whimper on these. And I need to comment a little bit because I agree that there's really not a whole lot more to this issue. It's unfortunately yeah. a lot of very generic setup. We come to understand that Karen wishes Matt just wasn't blind because he's a cutie. Do we even have actually do we even have that yet? I need to I not? need to repoke it. Hang on, well, let me see, keep scrolling. Uh on page my name 19, is mm -hmm. she says it just seems uh, that he needs someone to look after him. Yep. And so she already kind of has her like savior complex. And what a Karen. What a Karen. And we've got foggy kind of even in the art, and I understand that that might not have been the point at the time, but even in the art, he's kind of lurking behind her. He's and always there. Yeah, it gives you that uncomfortable feeling that is so 1960s comic-centric. And I, I just kind of feel like right up until that moment where Daredevil is just sort of like, fine, that dumb bastard had a heart attack, fine. Saves the courts the cost of a trial. And I'm like, that doesn't make him sound hard. That makes him sound pretty okay with murder. Yeah, yeah. Like, I can definitely see where people are like, Daredevil has a dark side. And I was like, well, I mean, he, he encouraged his dad's killer to, like, have a heart attack. I mean, you could go darker, you know. Yeah. He could have pushed him in front of the subway car. And I maybe think that the real enemy here is a life of trans fats and amphetamines and like probably a lot of bourbon. And I don't imagine he hits the health club or does any of the repairs on his own home. I feel like- Not much of a real fixer. Not much of a real fixer, exactly, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I think in so many ways it's, such an interesting issue because the best line in the entire issue is on the last page when Matt says, the name's Daredevil, remember it. You'll be hearing it again, I promise. Because it is kind of a promise. Remember it because I need some time and then you're going to hear it again and then we can be friends. But, <laughs> you know, Daredevil is a really hard sell from issue one. I think in a lot of ways, if this wasn't like 
such a seminal issue for so many people because it introduces this wealth of characters, really just four. You know, a lot of the people that get inserted into this story aren't here and you only know like half of them. So many people get inserted into this narrative that just don't exist. Yeah. 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 I definitely feel like this is a, this is kind of a blank slate for anything. I mean, you can tell that this is going to be a love triangle. Obviously you can tell that like his issues with his dad are going to pop up again. You can tell that his law office is going to be interesting. And like outside of that, like, you know that he can like do some flippy flips and that he doesn't actually kill anybody. So he's a softer hero. I don't know if they had grimdark heroes in the 60s yet. You know, not exactly, especially because a lot of the people that are going to grimdark the bat haven't yet cut their teeth on Daredevil to grimdark him first. Mm -hmm. But like, you're so right that so much of like, it's there, but it's not. You know what's not here? Ping, where's the radar sense? No, he's got like a wafting idea of it, but it's not, it's it's very much not the ping. It's it's not even like the echo waves. Like yeah. there's none of that artwork is here yet. I think we get it soon, but I don't think we get it yet. Now, one of the things that I feel like the comic meant as clever but time ultimately reveals as ableist beyond the Karen infantilization and Foggy's belief that Matt can't function without him. Though I do believe some of that ultimately is revealed to be Matt playing into a trope to keep Foggy in the dark on other things. But this came into the Billy Clubs thing. I love the fucking Billy Clubs. But this idea that the cane, it, as, as, as a, an extension of his blindness, if a blind person told me this was okay, I would feel okay with it. But the reality is this was shaped by three sighted people. And I'm unsure how I feel about heroically, fascistically accessorizing the blind. Yeah, I mean, to me, oh, it's a tough one because on the one hand, where else are you going to keep them? We like Daredevil, we'll get into it, but Daredevil has a weird thing where he kind of always has to keep his stuff on him. And how do you do that in a three-piece lawyer suit? Um, so like, it makes sense sort of that it's there and it's a very cute thing. And then you can fit a lot of stuff in it. It becomes like the gadget belt. Like it's, it makes comic book sense, but yes, from a like ableism and, and what do we think of this? I, I think, I think I don't, I don't have an, I don't have the right perspective to be able to properly comment on it. Unfortunately. I agree. And you know, outside of some pretty clunky moments in the art, like I have for many years thought that the bottom right panel of page 23 of digital, which is the penultimate page of the issue, sort of looks like a wizard daredevil is flying through the air on a floating gurney. And 
there's I a couple. Don't, I don't of know those. what the fuck I'm looking. There's at. a couple of those in the in the goon fight in the beginning at Foswell's gym. There are many yeah. times where he's just sort of like supermanning into someone or like hitting someone with his hitting their butt with his butt or something. Like there's just it's not as well done as we can as we've become used to these days. But I guess back then it might have been cool. Well, and you know, that last panel with the daredevil, vague horns the on shadow. the imposing shadow. The shadow's perfect. It's, you know, there really are so many moments in this issue that tell us what we can look forward to. And it's why I'm excited for issue two as a daredevil fan. I don't know that it, you know, by 1964 standards would have hooked me, but like by modern standards, I love this. And Ultimately, time has given me the opportunity to not think of it so critically, but rather constructively for what it is and what it could be, thanks to so many brilliant writers, many of whom are voices that would have never been able to write this book back in 1964. It's, oh, yeah. it's just so significant. And I really enjoyed going on this first issue journey with you. I'm much more excited to get to know the characters a little bit better in issue two, because this was like the origin of Daredevil. And we need to have a little bit more Matt Murdock, a little bit more Foggy, a little bit more Karen. And I know Mm -hmm. that's coming next issue. Definitely, for sure. I'm very much excited to get into the, the double lead that is Matt Murdock versus Daredevil. Well, until then, guys, I've been Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I've been Tori Sheehan. Again, that's at on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan, and on Instagram at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. Until next been, time. Yeah, right? And this has been the <laughs> Billy Club, and I can't wait to come back next time and talk about the time Matt Murdock flew a plane. It's not a plane. It's It's a a, rocket. It's a rocket. Well, it's a rocket. I can't wait. (laughs) It's going to be great. Till next time. Stay fearless. Stay fearless. Oh, I love that. Okay. Stay fearless. everybody welcome back to the billy club the show where we take a look at the adventures of marvel swashbuckling yellow-bellied fear man as tori so brilliantly pointed out in our first episode i'm nico and you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n and i'm tori sheehan you can find me on twitter at tori underscore sheehan and on instagram at sm tori that's tori with an i nico this issue Oh, this issue, this issue. Now, we're of course here to continue our investigation of Daredevil story by story, right? So we're gonna give each one of these the time they deserve, some cases a little more than, and that's gonna be okay too. So speaking of two, we're here to talk about Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, number two, featuring none other than Jamie Foxx himself, Electro. Now, this is, a story by Stan Lee with art by Joe Orlando, inking by Vince Coletta, 
and lettering by S. Rosen. Now this is our second issue and our second credit for Sam Rosen. <laughs> but it's but he, has, he only gets one letter. One letter. One letter. Only Maybe. one letter for the letterer. He saved himself a little bit of time. He did. He was like, right? I'm tired. He left the am out of Sam and it's sort of like a statement of self, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, I do want to point out something you said in our first episode that was so correct that I had to put it in my notes to make sure that I didn't miss out on it. Oh, but shit. the book is still bi-monthly at this point, or it's at this point, like initially, inceptively bi-monthly. And when you think about how Daredevil is always kind of like the second rung hero, it's crazy that he started bi-monthly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's June now. And like, that's the thing is that I don't, I don't know if two months has passed in Daredevil time. I don't think I don't it has. Harry so. <laughs> still feels very, very new. They feel like this might be their first case. Like they don't feel like they've been doing this for two months. So I agree. And it's important to note why this book was bi-monthly back in 1964. So for a period of time, DC owned the physical publisher that Marvel used to make their books and said, you guys have a limit on the number of books you can produce a month. So by making books bi-monthly, you could have more titles. So you could do, instead of 10 titles every 12 months, you could do, you know, 20 titles every 12 months by alternating them. Now, of course, the big names didn't get alternated, just Daredevil. <laughs> Just a little guy. Just now, little guy. speaking of our little guy, he's of course still in his signature yellow suit. And I love that he's still dressed like a banana wearing a tomato because mm -hmm. it really helps to highlight why this isn't the sleek blue and red of Spider-Man. This isn't the cool blue jumpsuits of the Fantastic Four. This is a guy running around in yellow. Yeah, he is very, very visible in this yellow outfit. I mean, not to say that he's not visible in red, but in the dark, red will fade in more than, than yellow will. And so I'm actually really interested. We've got a lot of yellow characters in this second episode. Yeah. Um, Electro's got a lot of yellow going on. The Thing is golden. Karen's blonde. Sue Storm is blonde. Yeah. Like, it's just a lot of yellow. A lot of yellow going on. And, you know, I can't help but notice that in the first issue, we talked about how so much of that cover space is given over to the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and logoing. Here, once again, the logo is a solid third of the cover. And, you know, Electro is just about as big as Daredevil, who, from the looks of it, is mid-bicycle kick? He was, he was swinging, and then he had, to, he had to do one of these. Oh my God, that's the first time I've ever seen the rope. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but you know whose head is bigger than both of the other heads combined? The Thing. Ever who is now, head. he's now got as many covers on of Daredevil as Daredevil. That is amazing. I, I can't even believe that. And what's crazy is it's actually really misleading. If you look at this cover, it says guest starring the thing, but it's a brief appearance. Don't blink your eyes or you'll miss him. I don't think it's all that brief. No, it's not brief. It's actually quite upsetting how much he is in this. Like right? deeply upsetting, <laughs> <laughs> especially as a person who doesn't really know a whole lot of this version of the thing. I'm very used to, um, 
Michael Chiklis who plays him in the Chris Evans movie. Yeah, and he's very yeah. avuncular. Right, and he's like fun and yeah. like working man, <laughs> but he's not whatever this is curmudgeonly and annoyed by everything and constantly frustrated by people trying to do their jobs but also able to fuse wood back together which like to be honest i would love it's kind of hot right <laughs> it's really that's nice <laughs> like to see so, what else he can crush well i think he could crush some johnny storm if uh, the internet fan fiction is to be believed hey someone's got to not be in love with sue storm Thank God. That's one thing I need to give this Daredevil issue for a book that could have immediately had Daredevil be like, oh, Sue is so intoxicating for the two seconds they're together, right? It didn't. It didn't. And I really appreciated that for a romance comic. They didn't try to shoehorn in a romance that I don't really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, it's actually also really interesting that for such a love triangle, Matt is very much staying out of it. Yeah. completely he's like he's like not even engaging to the point where i'm not even sure that he's said anything other than she's pretty which she is but like he hasn't been like i just i have feelings for her but i can't because my life is a mess and she thinks i'm blind and i'm not so like <laughs> <laughs> he keeps a lot of secrets but like it's this is a very lopsided love triangle right now but you know it's supposed to be a, a real like true circle around love triangle I agree. I definitely, definitely get that vibe. And I think one of the things that really took my attention right away with this issue and the presentation of Matt as he sort of fits into this dynamic is so much of Matt in this story still feels very disconnected from Foggy and Karen. And I don't want to say this is a little bit more of that Marvel method shenanigans where person A does this thing, person B does that thing, and they don't really have to communicate too much in between. But this is another example where Karen and Foggy are not a B plot, they're a B story yeah. in the Daredevil law book. Yeah, I think also because they have it so few issues coming out at the time, I think there is a push to make sure there's enough rock'em sock'em in there that everything else kind of takes a backside until they're like okay we have fans now we can move forward like and i agree with your assessment for sure because i think that's what like shoehorning electro into this issue was yes electro yes yes yeah yes. we're putting him there yeah i mm -hmm. mean you know my whole stance is you switch it to a k and an a and we got us an issue but for True. now we have Spider-Man's electric bad guy, one of Spider-Man's electric bad guys, you know, it's such a common thing that people don't realize it, but a good portion of Spider-Man's villains are also animal related, right? A good right. portion of the Fantastic Four's villains are some sort of misformed by science kind of creature, right? A lot of the X-Men's early villains aren't just mutants but they're mutant minorities and it's a very specific kind of trope there is no consistency to daredevil's earliest villains because daredevil doesn't really have a rogues gallery of note with the exception of you know leland and jebediah i, I don't really think there's a lot of i forgot about jebediah i know right i just 
I don't think there's a lot of classic early DD villains. And that's why this appearance from Electro, who other than I love the way their yellows play against each other in a really dynamic way, you know, it, it kind of, I feel like on that first page, that front piece, The Evil Menace of Electro, you can already kind of see where he is just sort of a cookie cutter character. And mm -hmm. this him sitting over the city, this could be any city backdrop. I really love the image of Matt because that's maybe the first really Matt image of Matt. But I think that is the transition from Bill Everett on the first issue to Joe Orlando on the second issue where Joe Orlando yes. maybe a little bit more understands our characters much to the fucking chagrin of what the thing looks like. <laughs> you know, when we're handed other people's characters, sometimes we do great and sometimes we're like, you're just a caricature, it's fine. <laughs> and you know, I do feel like that's kind of what happens, you know, and it's it's funny because we've commented a little bit on how already Daredevil represents the everyman in a way that Spider-Man can't. Spider-Man, you know, in his earliest incarnations is secretly brilliant. And then later on, it's sort of retcon that he's secretly brilliant and secretly jacked and secretly charming with women. You know, it the nerd fantasy, having lived it for years, you know, the, the nerd fantasy sort of self-insert has changed a lot over the years and this book really has a lot of working class to it for a book about lawyers and i feel like you can really see that in the art for this issue joe orlando's thugs have a much lower center of gravity they got a little bit more ass in those jeans especially on like we'll the get digital, into that right <laughs> on the digital page five when this like fight starts up it really gets that working class feel but man that the thing in that opening sequence really looks like a hamburger so he to me a the thing looks terrible but b um to me it feels like there should be like sitcom opener music under this whole scene yes like it's <laughs> that kind of feel and actually it kind of that feeling kind of goes away in the middle and then comes right, right back, back the moment that the thing comes back in at the end mm -hmm. it really really does like i feel like you could play the full house stinger music under all of this r.i.p bob um but yeah like it's 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 a romp it's it's a it's a sitcom like he totally. busted the door and i i can hear that canned audience laughter wanda would make this happen Oh my God, yes. Right, it's that level of, and it's it's so interesting because I even think it's in the way Karen is sort of an abstract visual. You know, in, in the 1980s, that image of Karen toward the bottom of her first page of the issue, th that would be like a, a sunglasses ad. I know she's not wearing sunglasses, but you don't have to wear them to have it be a sunglasses mm -hmm. ad. <laughs> And mm -hmm. she just looks almost like a prop. I don't know that I could tell the difference between Foggy and maybe, you know, um, Osborne in this yeah. image. Like there's, there's a lot of how almost everyone who isn't Daredevil suffers in this issue, which frankly, considering that Daredevil didn't look like Daredevil in his first issue, I'm, pretty okay with the trade-off but man these first few pages it is a really rough interpretation of some of those characters yeah yeah i really 
I'm just always so fascinated by how like lifeless the thing looks, particularly in the bottom right of, of this first paneled page. Um, it, 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 it like there's nothing behind the eyes. There's absolutely no expression. No like, one knows what it's like. <laughs> man. He's like, he's like, we're going to DC to get more medals. <laughs> Can like, you believe it? About to get on a spaceship. Can you be a little bit fucking excited as you jump out of this? I ain't got time to hang around here. I gotta <laughs> go. I, I also think that perhaps Reed is a little lifeless on that next page. That one shot of his face where he's just like... It's really severe. <laughs> And I mean, by no means are we making fun of the artists of the 1960s any more no. than we would comment on the artists of today. These masters of their craft worked so hard to develop these voices and these figures and these positions. What we are perhaps talking about is the assemblage of the ideas, perhaps the lack of support that a number of these artists had. You know, by today's standards, you would be able to do all of this on your Wacom in Photoshop, and you could make that shit look beautiful and then go over and do your logo in Illustrator. Yeah, and exactly. these, these guys couldn't. No, no. I'm still fascinated, like, on how they put all of this together. Like, I literally, like, there was a moment where I was sitting on the train and I was like, so they have to do the lettering on, like, sheets of translucent paper right because like what are they gonna do like have them pencil everything then the letterer goes in then the inker goes in like what is what is all this i can't imagine i honestly can't imagine how thin your pen has to be like to get mm -hmm. these little details on these little bitty bitty pages which i know are bigger in real life when they're drawing on them but still but still but still but you know what that kind of space on the bigger page lets you have the kind of detail that goes into the back of Matt's eyes on this on the second panel page. I'd like oh to God. thank Mr. Orlando, Mr. Mr. Vincent, Mr. Mr. Vince Coletta. I'd like to thank them both for everything. I, I would get gay if I wasn't gay looking at this. This is this would make <laughs> me gay. And like I want to thank S. Rosen, maybe Sam Rosen. Maybe it's a different S Rosen. Sam Rosen was just like, I'm I'm gonna put I'm the letters gonna up it. here. Way high. Up here. I can't <laughs> slip, get over. Slip me them ankles. Yeah, the calves are so mm. perfect. And there's something about, you know, we make all of these jokes as modern audiences about the difficulty in capturing fingers and capturing hands. And there is an attractive dexterity to the holding of the cane uh, on the bottom of page three. Mm -hmm. There is certainly an element of physicality that if Daredevil doesn't have, you notice right away. I feel like perhaps an Iron Man book where it's so much about the big beautiful armors and the widescreen panels. I think perhaps you can get away with a little bit more of a pinup style to an Iron Man book. But even Daredevil at its penny uppiest best, where Klaus Jansen is doing those like, you know, long vertical buildings for Wilson to have seven stack oh. panels in. Right? I, know, I can't wait. <laughs> I love them. Even when you're looking at those, the movement in those buildings with the wind on the ground and the light moving at angles through the windows, like when Daredevil doesn't have movement, everyone can tell. Yes. 
Yes, very much. I think that's one of the great things about why I'm so glad that he has the devil shadow in the first issue because it does set the tone for how we're going to be approaching light, light sources, um, that movement in so many of these things. It's why a lot of times when we're distracted by the art, it's because it feels static when it should be in motion. I agree. And I feel like the motion of Daredevil, I mean, fucking Bob Hope, vaudeville cane yanking a motherfucker mm -hmm. right off the page. Now in our comic, Kid Riot, I literally use a device like this as a joke where a character named the vaudevillain yanks someone from off stage with a magic crook. And here we have 1964, you know, Stan Lee doing the best he goddamn could, imagining how a not so blind blind man might be a superhero. Mm -hmm. And he imagined this guy is going to wrap that little cane around this dude's neck and yank him. Okay. Yeah. I want to thank him for leaving behind what looks like a croquet mallet and a hat. But I also want to say, that dd is stacked on that page like, yo no he got fucking business thick he got real thick his pectorals are are, are greeting me Deeply. they're like hey yeah. they want you to know it's very it's very that it's it's a sexual moment it really it is. is it really and is they want to remind you caddish yes i think it's because in this one um, he doesn't, nor so in the, I'm going to flip back to the cover. No, I guess he does have a V-neck, but in this one, it's like a wide V to like a shoulder tips as opposed to the normal, like crew, like t-shirt V, like that yeah. I would be wearing and exposing myself with, with a microphone. <laughs> um, but in this one, it's very much a, it's a, it's a very glam red carpet V-neck and oh, he, yeah. uh. He's showing us some deep, deep man cleave. And for sure. I think one of the things that this costume does really well is it creates shadow really well. Throughout this fight, the amount of times that all of the density of the red is sort of stripped down to a bare essentials black mm -hmm. really does create sort of a shadow fighter out of Daredevil in yes. a way that I think is kind of necessary to the boxer motif. If we're talking about how this issue lends a lot of credence to the reality of the everyman of Daredevil, I think we can then say that this issue also lends a lot of credence to that being his fighting style, whereas the first issue was a lot of... Flippy, flippy. Yeah. Gymnast stuff. And that's the thing with Daredevil is that Daredevil has multiple styles of fighting. He has his boxing. He's got the martial arts. He is very gymnastic-y. He's got a lot of different flavors to him. And so I think this is a really great way of showing him um, doing some really great strength work today. Um, he really works the weights, uh, oh, the, the whole throwing an engine with a tire oh, <laughs> which i wrote down i was like that's not how that grade of rubber works <laughs> no. not how that works if that's how that works there would never you screeching tires wouldn't be a thing you'd leave like ravels of of rubber <laughs> you would bounce to a stop all the time can't you just can't so yeah so the fact that he can just like 
he like there's this is definitely definitely the strength of daredevil which i think is really great and it also shows that he's smart enough to use different uses of physics to get the kind of strength that he's looking for i very much agree and i think in some ways you know when you're talking about bad guys one of the things you kind of need to accept is an elemental bad guy unless they're specifically demoted in some way but an elemental bad guy is a fucker and you know, I don't think of Angel being able to go up against Magneto. I think about the time Iceman did it. I don't necessarily think about how it would be easy for Mole Man to fight the Human Torch. I kind of think that's a Doctor Doom level thing. When I think about Electro, it's really hard to think about a lot of street level characters that could take him down unless the Punisher is massively insulated like an oven. I don't really see Punisher taking down Electro. So I wonder if in some ways giving Daredevil uh, what we're going to call Optimus Prime level strength out of nowhere was to kind of balance out how big a deal Electro ultimately is, because believe you me, I would not want to fight Jamie Foxx. There's a lot of things I want to do to Jamie Foxx involving full contact, but fighting isn't one of them. No, no. And like, we're not, it's still the 60s, so no one's using the whole like, your body uses electricity to move. Like we're not there yet, but right. like, no, you don't want to fuck with electrical people. You don't want to fuck with water people. You don't nope. want to fuck with air people, fire people. Like, no, you don't rock people. You don't want to do it. If it's a bender, don't fight it. Yeah, exactly. When they're like, oh, I'm a fire bender. I can steal the air, uh, air bender. I can steal the air from your lungs. I'm a water bender. I can dehydrate you to the point of desiccation. Like, no, we don't no. fuck with this anymore. No, I'm a and metal bender. I can take the iron out of you and make you really sleepy. Firebenders can burn the oxygen out of your lungs. Like there's so many scary ass things or electricity firebenders, you know, you got your Do they get electricity too? I haven't watched the shows. I should. Oh, so good. I know. So I feel as if one of the major hard parts about this issue is we get so close to what Daredevil is going to be, but it's still got vaults to go yet. When I take a look at the sort of formatting issues of Daredevil defeats the bad guys mid page six and then the bottom of page six introduces Electro reminds us his backstory page seven starts with some Electro then Daredevil changing his clothes and like I don't want to be crazy but I don't think anybody gay worked on this cost on this comic because they would know that that costume would be visible beneath a white shirt any day of the week that much yellow under a see-through white shirt no undershirt what is he thinking like Nothing. everyone's gonna see he's he's no thoughts no thoughts just backpack no, just backpack <laughs> is this backpack is this backpack this time or is backpack later i forget you know he definitely looks like he is just trying to change into some clothes that he found on the on the roof i it just I also want to know why karen has an 8 by 10 glossy of matt in her desk when she's not his agent I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really classic thing that I have to wonder if the world was different. And I, I mean this really seriously, but it is a common thing throughout Stan Lee and later Chris Claremont comics that people stare at photos of people they really could not logically have. There's a number of Xavier looking at Scott and his wife Madeline in bed photos 
and they're from Scott. Like Scott sent them to Xavier. So Scott had someone in their bedroom mid-coitus to take this photo and send it to Xavier. So there really is a weird trope throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s at the House of Ideas, where one of those ideas was send weird photos of yourself to people. This is what swingers do. Yeah, yeah, back when people used to call them swingers. Now, all joking aside, speaking... to ethical monogamous, unethical monogamous. <laughs> I think the Karen stuff here is maybe the closest we get to a love triangle. And I'm not sure everyone in it is aware it's a triangle at this point. Right now, this just seems to be a plot the geometry points kind of romance. And yeah. People are just this, drawing circles. Yeah, this is this is Karen is pointing at Matt. Foggy is pointing at Karen, but also Foggy spends a lot of time pointing at Matt, and I don't yeah. think he knows he does because, to be honest, the first time we met Foggy, he is looking at Matt in the with the most adoring face possible over their law books. So there's a lot of that, and then Matt is over here like, like there's like a dotted line to Karen or like and it goes up the z-axis and then comes back down to Karen <laughs> and then and then he's sort of just like yeah I'm good when it comes to foggy I think some of the foggy sexual tension with Matt that's in the books in the early 60s is the only way we can sort of contextualize the infantilization this adult man has for another adult man. Like, I don't think Stan Lee saw gay in it. I think he saw a man looking at man adoringly because he's so impressed. But like, we know Matt is the most capable human. So yeah. it's not like Foggy is actually looking out for Matt. And yeah. by recontextualizing it as a blind level of almost a beta submissive adoration, and not in a judgmental way, because there's a lot of people who benefit from being a beta in a romantic relationship. Not like, oh, he's like, you know, some soy boy beta cock, like, you know, like, but, you know, having him be the beta to Matt in a way that does reflect romantically, that does reflect, even if it's not a, an outright sexual desire for Matt, I could really imagine him being like, you know, my buddy Matt, he does great with the ladies. Let me tell you about this one hot chick. I'm like, why are you bragging about your friend in bed? Like that's, but like, that's the kind of level of dedication that at the bare minimum, you have to see Foggy has for Matt. Like yeah. it's hard to read this any other way unless you put that really weird infantilizing spin on it. Yeah, the more that you're talking, the more I can see that this is like the bumbling ex-jock older brother who's just like really proud of his bro who went to Harvard yeah and like can't shut up about it and he's just like really proud of him because you know like this one time he lost his sight and it's it's like a big deal and so I can definitely see more of that now but like it does come off very like I'm all about mad it really does it is a, a level of dedication that I think you know this second issue it might not introduce the red costume, but it does kind of give us a more certain Karen, a more specific Foggy. And, you know, it also gives us stuff like the radar. 
like radar actually pops up on page nine and even if it's not like exactly what we know disruption of the radar to look like the bottom of page nine has the sort of disruptive radar that we come to know he experiences a lot there's a ton to this issue that is at the heart of who daredevil becomes yes 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 i agree i also this is also when we start having things like daredevil's law work like runs parallel to his yeah. vigilante work and this time at least he's he's working for the right people we will see very soon daredevil uh, matt murdoch has a habit of just being like yeah sure this criminal that i fought last night let me be his lawyer hmm. <laughs> that's that's suspicious how are you gonna win matt um so yeah so this is also the fight we're leading into the fight at the ff tower I think what it's called or whatever that the Baxter building at some point yeah yeah and um then there and then electro knocks him out so like this is the first time that we've seen matt sort of like lose a fight yeah and then he's like instead of killing this guy or tying him up and leaving him here i'm gonna put him in a rocket and send it to space and then he does that first off and then matt wakes up and he pilots the rocket down into central park i think where he immediately begins riding a horse then he rides a horse so that he can go and catch a helicopter with his cane the same with cane his he cane. Used by the with neck his cane that he grabs and then he holds on to it like Mary, like some fucked up Mary Poppins thing. <laughs> I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. <laughs> Mary Poppins combined with Chris Evans's giant biceps holding a helicopter back. We get, we do get our first splash page on page 16. We haven't had oh. one before. And it's Very so beautiful. Gorgeous, tiny mat, big helicopter, big building. Very and nice. The colors at this point are so fucking incredible for this issue. I love the depth of saturation they put into some of the gold tones for Matt during the fight with Electro, and then the sort of dense darkness of the city in the sky is so stunning. Purples and, and fuchsias. Oh, and it's yeah. so gorgeous. It so, really yeah. has like a, a sea feel to it. Yes. And I also love the shade of yellow that Daredevil's outfit turns when they're in the dark in the building. It's a totally. really gorgeous color. Really, really nice. Takes a lot of that clowny warmth out of it. Agreed. Um, Cause he often really does look like a banana. He looks like a magic school bus. And like, it's not even the fault of anything, but the level of color print available at the time. These right. retouches on Marvel Unlimited look beautiful. We're super grateful for all of the work that everybody has done on these. Yes. It's yes. just, it's still really hard when you're looking at a giant yellow man kicking a giant yellow and green man. Yes, 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 yes. And then, uh, and then we go to the theater yeah. and have <laughs> all of the, the showgirls and the lights and the thing, and the catwalks and the hemp ropes. And there's so many things here that like the, my theater heart is like no don't touch that don't touch that because like <laughs> he's swinging on an arbor and i'm like it's not rated for your weight that's gonna come <laughs> down like 
these things are balanced to within an inch of their lives. <laughs> don't actually climb up the curtains on a on a show. Like if you're no. scared of something, don't climb up the curtain. You will bring the whole thing down because it's weighted. The curtain weight is balanced with the weight of the arbor on the side. And if it's if you pull on it and put your whole body weight on it, it will um, cause an issue. And the arbor on the other side has about two tons of pig iron, about 40 feet in the air. And they will come crashing down and they will shatter and you will kill everyone with shrapnel. Don't do it. So wait, I'm not a cartoon cat with weightlessness abilities? No, you are not. Oh my gosh. And neither is Daredevil. Which, okay. The geometry of this fight is Wild. much better than issue one. Oh, this is a much more fun fight than the much than more. the fixer fight. This is a very like interesting fight. The the electricity that he's throwing has all of these great things. It's very, very cool. The one thing I will say is you can see where Joe Orlando would really appreciate to have eyes on Daredevil because a lot of the faces he gives Electro are these passionate manic faces that I can see being given to the Joker today. Like mm -hmm. some of the work on Electro in particular is even by 1964, you know, brilliance is still brilliant today. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I take a look at Daredevil on page 20 and there isn't a decent shot of his face. I take a look at Daredevil on page 21 and there isn't a decent shot of his face. And there's so many great shots of Electro in this same time. And all I can think is that it's losing his eyes. You know, we can even see Orlando do a lot better on the Matt stuff, especially like page 22, where Matt kind of looks like a, an action figure a little bit. You know, the sunglasses really do take some of his activeness away, but it's still better than squinched covered face that I feel like you can almost see Joe Orlando resent. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that, especially because of how much detail he puts into the muscle groups. I'm like, he would love to have some like face work to work to do with here. Yeah. So it's a shame, a real and shame. I think the other real shame is perhaps the storytelling format that is so successful for Daredevil isn't a glimmer in comics eyes at this point. Mm. We're still sort of looking at a world where your rising action is 10 pages and your resolution is one page. Okay. And I yeah, if that. And I feel like that's something that we see very much with this issue, that Electro isn't dealt with until the top of the final page is really tricky for me because I don't know that I saw the fight go anywhere. I don't know that I saw Daredevil become smarter and able to fight Electro. I don't know that I, you know, because Daredevil isn't super strong. I know here he throws a car engine with a tire, flies a rocket ship, rides a horse which he then jumps off of to grab a flagpole which he then gets to the top of the building rides a helicopter across the city and then fights an electric man while climbing the curtains of a theater i do know that that is what we're talking about but it doesn't feel like he gets smarter it just yeah. sort of feels like i described the actions of a cartoon cat and yes. that's not the same thing yeah. The only thing that is like him that he notices is like, oh, the control panel. I'll just push all the buttons and hope that one of these curtains falls. Like this is very much like a luck thing. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm not that impressed by like Daredevil skills being showcased in this fight. I agree. And mm -hmm. it's sort of, you know, it's sort of the hard part of balancing a book where the character's alter ego is as important as their costumed identity. You know, that's that's the Spider-Man of it. Spider-Man is the duality of it. Superman is the duality of it. The X-Men, not so much. The X-Men, they, you know, they love their personal lives, but they're a soap opera. And it's a very incestuous soap opera. Most of the drama they need is from within their own halls. Daredevil sort of creates his drama where he needs to. And I think what sucks is the really interesting plot of this issue is somehow the Fantastic Four patent work and that's reserved for three pages. And the uninteresting part, Daredevil fighting someone else's bad guy where he doesn't get any smarter for it, takes up 19 pages. Yeah. And that's for me, you know, the other thing is you had an opportunity to have Karen talk to Sue. Well, now in fairness, Sue thought about Karen with all her little thinky thoughts and it was about her hair. It was. It was about her hair. It was. But it was not about a man's hair. It was. <laughs> okay. So well, yeah. we are getting closer to passing the Bechdel test. One man has pebbles for hair and one man's hair is a matchstick. So, uh, you know, it's just really lucky that they didn't both think about Reed's hair, I guess, because they would have found a way. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate because Karen, I think, I mean, even at her most agency, Karen is one of the most tragic characters in modern superhero comics, even at her most agency, you know, that we, for many of us in the Daredevil community, the pinnacle of storytelling is born again, which is, you know, character assassination beyond anything that had ever been done to a, a 1960s character like that. And, and, and I mean, gorgeous assassination. Oh yeah, oh yeah, but, but it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot for her. And you know, to see Karen have this really meager beginning and you know, so many of the revisions that go into fixing the 1960s the way comics loves to do, put Karen in a lot more position of intelligent action and here, I really can't help but notice that she is a gal Friday. And that's really heartbreaking as a guy who loves who she becomes in the Marvel Universe. I don't even think she's a gal Friday right now. She's a, she is a faceless future, future love interest, just my secretary right now. She is, she does, like, honestly, besides the fact that everyone's like, Karen, 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 you would not know her name. No. Like she has no defining characteristics. She has no defining issues. Her she's one, she's got the bouffant and she's got an innate sense of how many people she knows who could possibly fix this guy. And that's about it. She's got like 15 people in her life who can fix this guy. I was like, Karen came from a large family of optometrists. And, and like <laughs> medical experts. And like, yeah. we know that is not the case. No, God, <laughs> no. God, no. So like, that's, all she is is like a smiling blonde hairdo and it sucks but also like considering that right now foggy nelson is just 
a guy who bumbles around and might and wants to marry the blonde like that's it it. and matt's barely we know he likes the law and we know he has a secret outside of that matt murdoch's not a fully formed character no he's really not he's not he's got none of that i don't even think we know he's catholic at this point no i don't think so like he's got no guilt really he's got he doesn't really he doesn't mention his dad at all this episode like he's just a guy he's the most milk of milk toasts there is in this fully white and yellow issue and i can't even imagine what kind of world we're talking about where we're saying the everymanist everyman is a blind lawyer like that almost takes effort because you know, something that we definitely see now is when people try to make their main characters everyman's, they kind of feel like nothing because we want to follow somebody exciting. And even if they are an everyman by trade or by position in life, that doesn't mean make someone boring. And not that to say that there can't be characters who are at like a, a steady beat, but like you need to have something that sets your character apart. And so far, all I know about Daredevil is he has two jobs. Yeah. He has law job and he has big muscle punch job. And they don't even look like the same character. No. Like, it's not even like when Batman stands and he's got that big fucking chest. And it's like, this is almost a Clark Kent level of hiding it, but he's not trying to strap it down. So I don't understand why there's n- no visibility to his musculature especially because we see him just put a dress shirt over the costume. So I know I'm nitpicking there, but there is sort of a sense of this feels like two different titles. There is the Daredevil Punches Electro book, and then there's the bookends. And it really does not feel like anybody on the creative team is involved with crafting both yet. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to see them mesh it together better in the future because I know that they do get there. But right now this is... um, this is a mixed bag of pages and very few of them are good. I agree. So. And you know, that's the kind of danger when you're talking about these 1960s comics, but that's also the magic of them because while yeah, that first year is so tough, it was bi-monthly. So we're just talking about six tough issues, man. That's, six that's issues. It. Yeah. And so wow. then we're red costume. We're at Karen has some volume of agency. I know she's not quite a woman possessed of her own ability, but she makes decisions. She talks about quitting the firm. She talks about trying to further her own life. So it's still very submissive to Matt, but Mm -hmm. it's like actual dialogue. And I need that from her. The problem is Foggy's going to suck for 50 fucking issues. He's going to suck for a very long time, even after he gets married. Yeah, to Debbie, Married. right? Oh, God. <sighs> yeah. So, Debbie. I mean, this second issue of Daredevil, it's so interesting because Daredevil makes that joke of, trust me, man, it wasn't easy losing the Fantastic Four's clients. And that's kind of the signature of this book. Yeah. Everybody thinks Matt is the most helpless, hyper-capable person in the world. And at a certain point, I maybe feel like the writers 
relied on us to underestimate a person with blindness and it doesn't always translate well but for that i'm very grateful for that sort of tongue-in-cheek 60s of it that you pointed out in the beginning that sitcom, sitcom. it's all it, sitcom it kind of takes a little bit of the burn off yeah although now i do want wanda to take the the uh, netflix cast and put them in a dick van dyke set and make it all happen because i would die i would just I, die daredevil as mary tyler moore uh, oh my god foggy as rhoda it's it's right there it's right there stick can be phyllis because he's old he is old right but until we return to talk more about the yellow-bellied fear man as it were and the introduction of one of i believe our favorite daredevil villains of all Yay. time the precious the wonderful the owl I have been Nico Action, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I, I've been Tori Sheehan. You can find me on Twitter at, T, at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. And stay until fearless. next time, stay fearless. <laughs> stay Let everybody welcome back to the billy club the show where we take a look at the adventures of marvel swashbuckling yellow belly fear man in all of his early 1960s appearances i'm nico and you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n i'm tori you can find me on twitter at tori underscore sheehan and on instagram at sm tori that's tori with an i we we were talking in the green room about how this is like our first favorite issue of the series. I love the owl. It, he is so great. He is so silly and silly is so good. And I've said it a million times on Access for Podcasts. So I'm going to say it here one more time. The owl is responsible for apocalypse. How well the brilliant Louise Simonson, who had long worked with Anne Nascenti through the X office, was given the responsibility of taking over X Factor because Bob Layton, the brilliant writer and artist that he is, was really struggling to hit his deadlines. So he did not feel equipped to do the book justice and decided to step down. Now, the last page of his final issue saw an outline of a figure standing in a doorway commanding the axis of evil to do his bidding. It was going to be the owl but instead they turned it into apocalypse. And if huh. you think about their body shapes, shave off the ears and it's, it's kind of there. So, you know, even the things the owl isn't responsible for, so, uh, you know, non-bird related crime, he's still sort of vaguely indirectly responsible for. And I just want to thank the owl for giving us the Krakoan era and the Iraqan era. And all right, but, back to daredevil tori the owl how great was it to play around with leland finally it's just so much fun he's so tacky so tacky in the beginning it's so it's hard to take him seriously and i think 
I this was definitely the issue where like I turned I like texted Nico and I was like is Wilson Fisk around because he's making a lot of I will be the overlord of crime statements if the kingpin's around and he's like no there's no kingpin and I was like oh wow so he does get to be like on top for a little bit like good for him yeah um actually now that you're talking about things about the owl which came first owl or penguin you know, I got to assume the penguin. Now, I don't have my bat history quite down as well as my Daredevil history. You know, my my big things at Marvel are the X-Men and Daredevil. And then my big things at DC are Vertigo and the Lantern Corps. And I have a lot of bat knowledge because of all of the kind of bat Daredevil crossover. But I'll be honest, if I had to assume I would assume that Penguin is a 1950s villain and that would predate the owl. That said, they both feel very generic crime noir bad guy, kind of like deformed bird person. Mm -hmm. I think that that's very in line with like Mole Man and like Radigan from The Great House Detective. You mean my favorite Disney movie? <laughs> I, I love, love that, that movie. movie. A I thousand that percent. Movie. Anybody that wants down. can fight me. Listen, fight me. that clock fight is, is the most stressful, stressful thing you will ever watch. It's in your beautiful. Life. It's okay. I did not know we shared this. And now that I know that we share this, it's just made our friendship even better. Man, our noir love goes everywhere. Everywhere. So, you know, right off the bat, Daredevil number three, you know, it's, it's still got that gigantic logoing on the cover that we're not crazy about. But let me say how much I love the fagaliciousness of that corner box. <laughs> oh my God, what a gay lord. Look at him with those little hips and the little shoulder pop. And Nico, like, that's been there for three issues. I love it more now than ever. I don't know if it's the explosion of the, the owl beneath it, but there's just something about the way it sits on this cover that I'm about it. He's got a green background this time. It pops. And you know what? I think it's something about the amount of white on this cover that yes. there's a lot more drawing you to what feels like a cover. You know, the first two felt like splash ads for Daredevil. Mm -hmm. But this has like, you know, it's look, it's not like I'm saying that this is a Jim Steranko, you know what I mean? Like, we're not saying that we're looking at, you know, sort of like high point of the creation in that era. We're, we're still talking about like Daredevil finding its feet. We're still on a bi-monthly schedule in 1964. You know, there's still some clunkiness to the positioning of stuff but like yeah and he's be careful finding his feet on this cover because there's a trap door underneath him oh it's he can't he can't even possibly know that he's standing on the trap door when he's not sure where his other foot is can't know can't can't it's off page what are you gonna do what are you gonna do and i think this is the first cover that like puts karen in an active role instead of appearing visually on the first cover in like a floating head kind of way is, is that karen I mean, it's a I mean, it font. Is. It, is. it is. So it's got to be. Because <laughs> at this point, we can just kind of tell women apart by hairstyles. Yeah, that's all we get. That's all I we know. get. But I mean, 
I I love that this is the first time where Daredevil is the biggest thing on his own cover. That's yeah. nice. There is no Fantastic Four member on his cover. That's very nice. It's shocking. That's for first sure. Time. First time. First time for everything. And I so. think one of the things that's really great is this cover still has a lot going on for it. You know, yes. it's still got multiple figures on it. So it doesn't feel like kind of like a forgotten cover or anything. I love the sort of shape of the shadow behind the throne being the owl's menacing body with kind of the bright owl kind of eyes right behind him. So they're really going for a visual in an era where, you know, let's say like Daredevil's iconography is all over the fucking place. Spider-Man is the amazing Spider-Man. And then a lot of his bad guys are bugs or goblins. You know, there's a consistency to it. And we talked about this a little bit last episode, but there's no consistent iconography uh, across Daredevil or his bad guys yet, really. So having kind of this sort of forethought put into the cover where they're both kind of these horned figures, it's kind of a nice thing to see. It makes me feel like we're starting to pull it together. Here really may come Daredevil. Yes. It definitely feels more um, like... Like, I feel like, I don't want to say the word Renaissance painting because that's not true, but it feels composed. Yeah, it feels like I it has that. balance. It feels like they're, like, someone at some point thought about a Fibonacci sequence, like, part of it. Like, it just feels like a, a solid piece of art, finally. And it's really interesting because this is still the same creative team as the second issue. Daredevil number three was written by Stan Lee, illustrated by Joe Orlando, inked by Vince Coletta, with once again letters by S. Rosen. And it really is an example, I think, of where the more one person drew the character, the more the character sort of it came into a sort of understanding and a concept. Mm -hmm. I felt like I not only recognized Daredevil more visually here, mm -hmm. but I feel like I recognized the physicality of Daredevil by Orlando and Coletta pretty readily. Yes. Yes. I also love the the tone that they set with this one on the second, on the inner cover page. Um, that owl is terrifying. The extra eyes behind Leland are creepy. It's a beautiful beautiful way to set up the the creep factor for a villain that's supposed to be creepy but comes off a little tacky right now oh for sure and you know the way that they understand how to kind of balance things from the cover to the inner cover i feel like we lost a lot of space in the first two issues to those sort of i don't want to say over the top but certainly definitively striking fronts pieces here, the fronts piece plays into introducing the owl, and we see the shrunken Daredevil logo. It doesn't still say, here comes Daredevil, the man without fear. It just says, Daredevil battles, the owl, ominous overlord of crime. There's a lot more thought being put into where the letters need to be on this cover in a way that definitely provides me a little more understanding of what they're going for. I'm yeah. a little thrown by why they need to mention that it's a movie-length thriller. It's just standard 22 pages. I wonder if perhaps around this time a number of books were getting shortchanged pages for whatever reason. Possible, possible, possible. But yeah, that owl is fucking terrifying. And these sort of big, scary fucking eyes 
lingering in the background is a huge element of the owl's iconography. Which is really cool because you don't see them really pop up again in the rest of the issue. So like, for me, I'm just like, oh, that's creepy and weird. So, but owls are always watching. So like, I get the idea. Oh yeah. And it's really interesting because you, you've mentioned that the owl is kind of tacky. And I think he's tacky in a way I really enjoy. He's high camp. Yeah. He's, he's high camp. really high camp. And high camp. he actually does some stuff that I have called out in more modern comics. There's a couple of characters that when they show up, I'm pretty famous for eye rolling. I'm not interested in, in their shenanigans. And here it's adorable because, you know, we're talking about 1964, which is clearly already a position in American history mm-hmm. where bad guys were legitimately bad. You, you know what I mean? We're not mm-hmm. talking about an era where we were still in a social contract that forbade the understanding of who the bad men were. Yes. And that this is the ideal of like evil noir capitalism in 1964. He's like a Lon Chaney character. Yes. And I love that here. The, the, uh, the, it's not really a fedora, but the trilby that he's wearing. (laughs) Yeah. First time that you sort of see his face in the, in the second panel page, like he's a little green looking. He's got an old fashioned overcoat with the, like, um, the top cape on it. Like it feels like we're about to have a very Jekyll and Hyde moment, which is so interesting yeah. because in the beginning, the owl does not have owl features. Agreed. And so there's yeah. not a Jekyll and Hyde feeling to this guy. It's just Leland. He's just crazy. So and, like, yeah. But it's like, it's like actual crazy. You know what and I mean? He's like crazy. He's like actual crazy. The fixer is kind of like, nah, see, I'm gonna arrange it so that the guy takes a foul and then I'm gonna make all the money. You say, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. he's dumb. And then <laughs> Electro is kind of like an actual criminal mastermind, but yeah. he's not crazy and he's not brilliant, but he's not stupid. He's kind of like a run of the mill bad guy. The owl gets off on this. The yeah. owl is literally like, I'm going to kill you. This is going to be so fun for me. LOL. I'm a bird. Like, he's nuts. I feel like the fixer wants to beat the shit out of you. He doesn't Mm -hmm. order, he doesn't so much murder for fun. He murders for consequence. Electro, to me, uh, isn't really in the murder business. That's not, that's too dirty. Like, that's not what he's into. But okay. I feel like Leland will just like show up at your door and be like, you know where you'd look pretty? In 15 pieces all over the harbor. I can't wait to see you on the sidewalk. Right? Like, and I guess that's like that bird of prey feel that we're supposed to get out of him. So for me, like Leland is definitely the scariest one that we've had so far. Also because he does have a surprisingly good facade in society. Which yeah. is another Jekyll and Hyde reference. Wow, Corey. Wow. You know, and the other thing that I think really supports your point about his facade in society is he plays a daredevil Matt role while looking like Foggy. 
he doesn't look really that unlike Foggy here. And I don't think that's a knock on Orlando. I think that's a little bit more a statement about the sort of universality of commonized fashion in white 1960s. You know, it's, it's Mad Men. Everybody on Mad Men that wasn't one of those freaky young beatniks or one of the hot ones was, uh, you know, dressing exactly the same. And they all dressed like Roger or Don in three different colors. You know what yep. I mean? And so there's just something... I don't know, this also has like all of my favorite hallmarks of the Daredevil issue. The bad guy kills somebody on the first two pages, Daredevil gets involved, then Matt gets involved because somebody finds them in the fucking phone book. Like, oh, that's one of my favorite stupid Daredevil conceits. And it is one of the dumbest Daredevil conceits. I hate it. I love it and I hate it. I love it to hate it. I hate to I love know. it and I love I to hate it. It's I'm so just like, stupid. It's always this one, it's always open it up to the middle. One, two, three, bang. Nelson and Murdoch. Every, every time. time. Every time. Every time. You know what? You know what sucks? What that sucks for? Uh, Naples know it all and and knock them off. Like yeah, die right ahead of them. <laughs> right? like, they're ready to do law stuff, but they keep having to go to smaller and smaller spaces. <laughs> but like, also, um, I think the biggest distraction when it comes to Leland is how pink foggy's outfit is okay yeah that's yeah. uh deeply upsetting but no yeah no i love i love leland i love how creepy his face is and how perfect it is for maniacal laughing like it's just it's all the jowls and all it's right it's there. this the crazy eyes coming out of like the the bigness there's like that's kind the, of a harvey weinstein to it that's the thumbprint for the youtubes that's it <laughs> and yeah there's so much about this one finally kind of blending the law stuff a little bit more correctly it feels like the law story is furthering the daredevil story which is yes. like the hallmark of good dd yes this That's is like now this is now that moment where matt decides to defend the guy that he's fighting at night and he's just like, yeah, I got that. Now I can, I can compartmentalize. And it's so much throughout this issue because I feel like the first issue was Matt chasing the fixer and then fighting the fixer. The second issue was Matt chasing Electro, then piloting a rocket, then riding a horse, then climbing a flagpole, then flying helicopter. across the city on a helicopter. Exactly. I feel like for that set of issues, we were constantly dealing with Daredevil and Matt, neither one of them interacting with the bad guy in any mm -hmm. meaningful way. But here we see that the Owl actually is a pretty reasonable antagonist for Daredevil. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that this is an excellent way to showcase that Matt does as much villain punching in the courtroom as he would as, he would as Daredevil. Um, and I think this is a really good showcase of like Foggy and Matt and how they work together. Um, so I I definitely dig that this is that this adds more to the Matt character because we have just been complaining about how we don't know who Matt is, and in this one we get a little more Matt finally. And I feel like it goes a little bit further than just a little bit more Matt, because you're right, I completely agree with you. But it's kind of like the book is finally getting its feet mm. to 
The color choices feel a lot more consistent with issue three. And, you know, I've read a lot of the books from 63, 64, 65. You know, this is an era that I've read extensively for my different projects and for pleasure. And not everything had these vibrant, punchy, weird colors. Not yes. everything made the whole city purple. And I think some of the color choices are a result of Daredevil being primarily yellow, black, and red. So the secondary color choices that set what this is to look like come from that because yes. you then expect a blue and pink kind of sky that meant that the owl's airy or rookery, whatever the fuck he's calling it, this page on page eight has like, it's like a goddamn Skittles bag and it works for Daredevil. Do you think you it's because he's colorblind? I would accept it. Matt can never see colors, so anytime we're watching just Matt, everything's just all fucked up. Well, I also love that how much they come to use that in the book, where it starts to be like, what color is this? Is almost shorthand for, are you really Daredevil? Are you mm -hmm. really Matt Murdock? And, you know, there's even funny, subtle, in-universe color stuff where we commented in the second issue how much we loved the golden richness of Daredevil during the Electro fight more than perhaps the, as you pointed out, kind of clownier yellow of his standard costume. And I can't help but feel like pages six, seven, eight, they really do transition him into that golden yellow, almost like mm -hmm. they know that the red costume is coming. Yeah. Almost like they know that this yellow is unsustainable in so many ways. And I think, yeah, this for me really is the first Daredevil issue. Those yeah. first two, they're cool, but this is Daredevil. Yeah, this is when we find our footing. This is when um, people start saying, hey, I really enjoyed that episode last night. I'm gonna tell my friends about it kind of I stuff. Um, but it's also the issue where Matt decides to give himself a backpack. So, you know, there's always a downside to every great episode, every... Every season two of Buffy still has iRobot. You no, that's from season one. No, but there's definitely plenty of there's some shitty ones in there. <laughs> and that's what's always so crazy about comics because for the most part, like clunkers lift out a little bit easier of a comic run than they do of a series or like a TV mm -hmm. show because you can just get the couple of pages you need from it. If you were really asking me to summarize what matters about this issue. I would say it's just coming into contact with the owl, a legal enemy and a vigilante enemy who actually tests the metal of our hero. Yes. Because there's a big hot dude wrestling a gorilla in this. And that is just pure 60s crack. Yep. And there's henchmen being thrown down what is pretty clearly a well baby Jessica style. And once again, that's just sort of pure 60s crack. And third cages. Yeah, yeah. Just, we're looking at, yeah. What are we doing? What are we doing here? And I still think it's a great issue, is the thing. Oh, yeah. Because it hits a lot of the beats that I really love that kind of do become synonymous with the owl. I think the airy is one of the most lunatic sets in the world because it's so big. And it's so garish. How, how aren't they always just attacking it? How didn't how did no one notice? Thank you. Cause like it's in it's a 
He's a blah, blah, blah. It's in the Palisades. You can see the Palisades. Yeah. Is this where they built the mall? Yeah, probably. If they probably like were like, just uh, scrub the eyeballs off of it. That's the mall. That's where the giant <laughs> elevator goes. <laughs> I also can't help but notice this is the first time boat transport becomes a thing. And I don't think I've come across it so much in my X-Men reading, my Avengers reading, but a lot of Daredevil stories inexplicably pan to somebody escaping via boat. I think it's because as they reveal in this issue, water is not Daredevil's friend. Yeah, and that is definitely gonna come and go. That's one of those things that we see kind of sometimes water helps him. Sometimes it's rain and it makes everything clear for him. Sometimes it's water and it's like punching through jello or whatever. But the thing that Daredevil cannot punch through is Karen's tears. <laughs> like, I do love that this is the first time we see Karen in mortal danger. We're going to come back to that well, almost every issue. Almost every issue. Almost every issue. Um, but like we really push more of the I want to fix you trope on this one. And like his grumpiness about it is not okay. But also like back off Karen. He said no once already. And it's cool. I feel like this is also indicative of what a lot of Daredevil is going to come to look like. In a lot of ways, we get a lot of the very intimate, private moments from these characters. We get sort of like different facial close-ups. And then there's, of course, the juxtaposition to the fact that he is Daredevil at the bottom of the page. And that's, I think, one of those really classic images of Daredevil. He's standing there. There's no the man behind him. Like, that's not an image of matt murdoch's right. shadow that's right. just who daredevil is is this complex multi-person and i feel like this is also the first time we get that mm -hmm. you know i feel like in one and two we're kind of fine with the fact that he's daredevil it's whatever but this is the first one where he's like am i matt murdoch am i daredevil it's not quite as clear as i'd like it to be but it's definitely moving towards where I want it to move for the sake of these characters becoming more realized. Yeah, one of the things about Daredevil is that he's very much, he creates very, very, very separate identities for, for who he is under the mask and who he is at work. And right now they sort of bleed into each other, which is very, it feels very weird coming back to it because you're so used to them being so defined that you're used to actually like, it's a dual lead. It's Matt right. and it's and Daredevil. Daredevil. Like yeah. they're two separate people. And to see them be very close to the same person with the same motivations, the same goals, the same things. Like even when Daredevil later is like saving Karen from things and thinking about how much he loves her, it's with the cold detachment of the horns in comparison to the caring kinder man in a suit in a lawsuit kind of thing so it's just it's odd for yeah. me but for a new reader it might be fun i don't know well and i think 
for me, one of the problems is so much of him saving Karen in this issue feels manufactured. Yes. I don't feel like Karen actively became involved in this story. I feel like she, as it shows on panel, is abducted directly into the narrative of mm -hmm. Daredevil, mm -hmm. where she doesn't really belong by the story's own kind of like beat principles. So when they wind up swinging like cool cages and bird, like, you know, it's just, it's a little, it's a little not what I wanted from this issue, but it goes back to being fun crack the minute Daredevil breaks out like it's nothing. Yeah. Because that is a the owl thing. Yeah. The owl has no idea who he's facing and he always does all of this research, but he has no idea. It does feel like Karen's kind of incidental here once Daredevil breaks free but it's it's daredevil swinging from a birdcage to save karen while fighting the owl in a giant building off the coast of the palisades in new york that looks like a giant owl i also think that it's it's one of those things where we need to introduce someone who thinks daredevil is awesome cuz like up till now like foggy doesn't talk about him karen doesn't talk about him so we have no idea what people think about daredevil yet agreed and so we need someone who's around to say oh my god that daredevil he's just so great um and it's going to be karen who's like he reminds me of someone else great weird and i think one of the things that makes karen such a great person for this is it kind of goes back to something we discussed in an earlier episode foggy's near impotent hero worship of Matt. Like, it, it does feel like Foggy puts himself below Matt. It almost feels like Foggy says to Karen, I know I'm not Matt, but at least I've got my sight. And it's a situation where I don't know that Foggy could, could be like pro Daredevil without seeming unbelievably weak for it like I mean, foggy's already like a wet noodle and i feel like if he worshiped daredevil on top of it it would take away any access to self-possession right there's there's something in that in what you said that reminded me of the idea of courtly love in that both mm -hmm. of them both of their adoration for matt can allow them to adore each other um, and I think that Foggy's there, uh, Karen's not there yet, but I agree that like, it's okay to be gay for one guy, but if you're gay for a guy in tights too, you might have to reconsider what you're thinking. And I feel like for Foggy, that'd be too much. Cause usually, and I mean, spoiler alert, Foggy's usually the one who's like that damn daredevil is tearing up the city again. And Karen's like, no, he's a good man. And that's what we live with. And I feel like years. what would men and boys in the 1960s have thought of a guy who is like, no, my my blind best friend, he's the stud. And this superhero, he's the stud. Because that's pretty much what Karen is. Yeah. Karen is Daredevil is so hot and cool. And Matt is so hot and cool. And again, I'm only throwing in the even though he's disabled because the book goes out of its way to hit the disability as a plot point so consistently yeah we look at karen as coded dramatically and dangerously female 
I mean, she is a woman, so I'm not saying coded, but like she's so defined by her tropes of era that it's problematic. And then you know, imagine if they had switched it around. Imagine if it was Foggy. We would be sitting here today talking about gay Foggy Nelson and how he finally came out because it would have really, you know, talking about how if Foggy had loved both Matt and Daredevil, it is unbelievably clear to me how little they gave Karen. Yeah, yeah. They really, they gave her very little to work with. And I feel like it's, it, it, it's almost, it's almost, it's almost like she's, she's the after she's the continuation of the nerd fantasy yeah that's what this is like to have the big jock that's your big bro be like this little nerd is so cool and the girl to be like that nerd is so cool like it's for all the little nerds who read the comic books in the 60s to be like ah i too can be a productive member of society right instead of making facebook and becoming an incel and that's kind of like it's a weird thing to say, but Karen's perspective on the situation she's in with Matt almost actually reflects kind of elements of incel culture. Why won't you just love me? I could fix you and change core elements about you and remove the things I see as weaknesses to make you perfect if you would just fucking touch me. So this was, so this was, so there's like a lot going into like the idea of the female career woman in the sixties, because she's not quite, she's not obviously not like a bra burning, like feminist type. She's very much an, I went to typing school so that I could go to work and meet myself a man. Like Karen very much like walked into the interview with Foggy Nelson and went two eligible bachelors who are lawyers, sign me up because that's how you get a man. You end up marrying the guy you you type for like that happened a lot a lot a lot and for her to be like i can fix you is a lot of the idea that men knew that their lives were better if they married and if they had a a woman who was interested in their betterment that was even better because she can help you um do the social climbing thing because men with with wives were able to like host dinners where their bosses could come to, their clients could come Jackie to. Jackie O it up. Yeah, they could Jackie O it up. And so it's to your betterment to find a girl who's like, I can help you. I can make you better. I can take you to that next level while completely worshiping you at all times and not trying to change you to what I want, but to change you to what you want. And so she's like living that lane in a really error appropriate, super specific way. So like she makes sense for the time period, especially this is like that ideal kind of lady where you're like, she can, she can hang out with the guys, but she really just wants to be home ironing your underwear kind of thing. She wants, you know. And I, that. yeah, a thousand percent. And it's, it's, you, you, it's a lot. Yeah. And it's like, a lot to I, like think about now. But like back then, this would have been like curtains. Like, yes, we get it. It's just background noise. Like, yes, that's how women act in the workplace. So I'm reading this in 2022. And, you know, I've read it since like 1990, whatever. The first time I read my Daredevil Masterworks hardcovers, whatever. But I've always read it as Karen is written 
unfairly to women. But I think what I'm hearing you say is by 1964 standards, Matt was an idiot and was looking past this perfect woman by era appropriate standards. Yes, yes. Karen is a girly feminist, that's G-U-R-L-E-Y, uh, which was an early form of feminism, which just basically said, ladies, you can pick the guy you want. That's feminism. Um, but yeah, no, like Foggy's the one being like, you're perfect, you're everything. I can be the guy, you can make me better. Look at me, I'm a louse. And she's just like, but what about that one? That one's got bigger issues. And Matt's just like, no, nah, I'm good. And like Foggy must be sitting there being like, bro, she wants to take you to the next level. Like you could be president. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Like it's it's weird because now that you're saying all of this, it's almost like, and I'm sure I'm not saying anything new and please forgive me for coming to feminism on the next level a little late. You know, I, I've always been very pro the advancement of- I mean, I don't know if I would call this feminism, but I would call this like, an assessment of like what a good wife would be yeah as a man it's almost like karen is groomed by society's patriarchy to groom matt but it's not that she has agency in grooming him it's the patriarchy has informed and demanded of her the ways in which she will put pressure on Matt to grow. Yes. It's the old, like, why, like, a queen would have her own court and she could, like, fuck around with shit around there and have her own sense of power that had to deal with, like, influencing the wives who would talk to the husbands, who would talk to the king. Like, that kind of stuff where it's, like, all subterfuge and all in the background and all based on, like, what colors you're wearing for dinner and kind of stuff. But like, this is what Karen is doing. Karen is 100% playing the game to the best of her ability to get what she wants, which is a husband and security and not have to be a typist all day. And Matt is just like, not getting it. It's unfortunate that I believe the metaphor they're going for is he's blind. He's blind. Did you know that love is blind as well as justice? And you know, we, we've talked three times now about how this is a romance noir and that's hitting a lot of the buttons for me what's fascinating is it never because daredevil doesn't properly save karen daredevil does not swing out of there on the grappled billy club with his damsel in his arms exactly we both did the thing because he doesn't do that it doesn't feel like he rescues her quite the way no. it would like you know as somebody who talks to me a lot about story structure I feel like his failure to save Karen as Daredevil relates to his almost Hemingway-like impotence as Matt. Yeah, yeah. It feels like he did the thing where he's like, go, 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 go. And she, and she goes and she sort of drives herself out of there. And then he drags himself out of the river later. Like she she's given the opportunity to run and she does. She doesn't do the stupid thing and try to stick around to help because um, she's not there yet. Um, but yeah, he doesn't actually like do the real save. Like he doesn't come in, punch the guy, 
get the girl, get out the door that we're very used to. Because he's captured with her, he's already on the level of her yeah. being caught. Yeah. And then he gets them out, but like then immediately like can't can't just like escape after doing like a one punch knockout. So I agree, like he's not he's not nailing it yeah. in any way in any way, shape or form, which is why like her coming out with like, oh my God, Daredevil's so great is like, girl, you're getting a victim, like this complex about victims and like wanting to help all these baby birds. That's going to be super helpful for you in the eighties. But like right now is actually just like a really like concerning trait that you should see a therapist about. It's a weight that's going to be the reason your transformation in the, you know, Karen's transformation is so reflective of what writers thought of her in the 60s and 70s. The way Karen is able to have agency is helping other people who are also victims. Mm -hmm. And that's so set up here. It's in a lot of ways, because you know, there's that really famous Mark Wade quote that I'm going to dine out on until I'm 103, right? Which is everyone after Frank Miller has spent their time on Daredevil doing shades of Frank Miller to greater or lesser success, including Frank Miller. And I think almost every fucking thing Miller and Jansen built their Daredevil around comes out of this issue. Oh yeah, oh 100%. With the Kingpin competent, replace Karen with any number of unfortunate victim women from Heather how, Glenn. How many wives has Matt had now that it's 2022? Four? I think, I think he's only technically had two. Two, okay. I think it's technically only two, but I think he's had four fiancés. Oh, well. So I'm with, and then there's Foggy. So I feel as though this is such an important issue in the way it tells us what Daredevil will become that so many of the silly things I can overlook because crawling out of the river hours later is such a Miller thing. That is such a thing to this day yeah. in Daredevil. Like the, the, the Zdarsky run, the yeah. one going on now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, he, we definitely see the beginnings of something that is real Daredevil in this episode. And yeah. I think that, um, Anyone who says that you can skip the yellow years or you should skip the 60s is mostly right, but is doing you a disservice and missing some of this early stuff. It, you really are. Like, this is a really fun, excellent issue yeah. that I wish could have been the first, but we needed all of that first issue backstory to exist before we got to here. We really did, unfortunately. What's weird is I, and I know it's not how comics worked back then, but I wish that the first issue could have been like an eight page fixer backstory origin flashback that told the fixer story as Daredevil's origin with Electro as like the 12 page main event. So this could have been like the second issue because I, I do agree, if you skip the yellow years, you're doing a disservice to yourself. The Daredevil Yellow miniseries from about 20 years ago does a great job doing some of the work for you. And what I get from the Frank Miller, John Romita Jr., The Man Without Fear 1 through 5 has nothing to do with this. 
that is not charming, that is not magical, that is perfect storytelling, but it's such a revised origin. And you're right, you're doing a disservice because this has heart. This has Yay. whimsy even. And it's joy, it's campy. You're like, yeah, this is why I'm here. It's like, it's, it's watching like the best of the 60s Batman show. And I feel like because it was bi-monthly, we're probably missing out on a lot of garbage because, you know, Bullseye doesn't show up until the 130s and Elektra and Kingpin till the 170s, 160s. And, you know, even the book is going to take a massive turn and for 40 something issues, it's going to be about Daredevil and Black Widow as a team up. And that doesn't start until the 80s and it's over by the 120s and everybody forgets about it. So it's like, we have so much Daredevil to kind of get through that the ease of working through these yellow issues. It's, I don't know, I'm ultimately pretty grateful that, you know, there's a lot of the Ox, there's a lot of Matador, there's a lot of, you know, the crime wave kind of stuff that we're gonna come up against that's not as charming. And that's in the red years. Yeah. And because Yellow really is six, seven issues, because it features people like Electro and Namor and characters we know, I, I think ultimately my assessment is with you. You shouldn't skip the Yellow years, even though we're only halfway through them, because it's kind of harmless. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're harmless. They're fun. They go quickly. Yeah. I know it's a lot of reading because like, to be honest, also now that like I'm in the 80s and like the wordiness has started to drop off on uh, starting in the 1980s, this is a lot of reading, a lot of reading um, compared to like what's happening now in the 2020s where they're just like five words per page. Thank you. <laughs> it's like an issue to a trade kind of word count yeah. value. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge the amount of the amount of wording that is on the page in these. Like I can definitely see how people used to be like, yeah, comics are books. Like they were. This is a lot of words. And if you think um, about the like the per word pay rate, I really feel like when you were paying like a nickel for a book and getting a goddamn novella, it was, you know, I can see where sometimes, I think that comics at $5.99 a piece are kind of, you know, I make comics, you make You're paying for art. Calls. You're paying for exactly. art at that point. Yeah. You're paying for the boutique of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I still think, and this isn't to do with anything. I just I do think that there's still so much value in the less word version, putting more emphasis on the art, because a lot of times the beautiful art does get covered up by words. There's a lot of places where they leave all of the characters uncolored because why do they need to draw your eye there? Right now they need your eye to focus on the six paragraphs that are right. at the top of the panel. Right, and I imagine it's also not very fun for the letterers who are just like, this is just technical writing. Like it's not even the fun stuff. It's not that interesting. It's not involving any character work. Like it's just literally just words, 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 words. And speaking of words, 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 uh, the owl is going to get real famous for saying, until we meet again, Daredevil. One of the hallmarks of a Daredevil issue like this is it just kind of ends. You know, I feel like Magneto is like, ah, fuck, I'm gonna go back to my base and go get a really powerful Holocaust backstory. And I feel like, you know, 
when it's goddamn Kang, he's like, I'm going to go back to my time base and I'm going to go get myself a real hot MCU actor. What the fuck? And I feel like when it's the owl, he's like, I'm going to go back to my base and sharpen my talons in my cage. And it's just weirdly unsatisfying. Like that is the one thing I will say about the end of this issue. This issue has no satisfying conclusion. They still haven't figured out the concluders. Like they're so, they're so interested in packing as much fight into these things as possible. Sometimes without even daredevil being in the fight that like, they're just like, oh crap, we have five, we have half a page to to finish this guy. Uh stand here, think this, uh, look at each other real quick, and Matt, you walk away. And you know, speaking of Matt, you walk away, I think it's so fascinating. The last person in this book is Karen. Mm-hmm. It's specifically Matt walking away. And instead of the complex shadow of Daredevil, it's the straightforward shadow of Matt. So we had that first issue that juxtaposed Matt with the Daredevil shadow. And then we have this issue that goes out of its way to juxtapose Daredevil with a Daredevil shadow and Matt with a Matt shadow. The Daredevil with a Daredevil shadow was in relation to Foggy. Matt with a Matt shadow is in relation to Karen. And it kind of speaks to the duality of the book and the fact that we're so close to homogenization. We get a little bit closer with Purple Man. We get a little bit closer when we get to Stilt Man. You know, we're we're on our way, but we're we're just we're clicking along, right? Yeah, yeah. This definitely feels like it feels like we're we're get we're right there, right, there. right there, right there. And there's still some like where you can still tell like this is season one and like the lighting budget shit. But <laughs> I really. I mean, Karen is inching closer to the truth. Foggy is inching closer to being a pervert. Like, Matt is looking good on this final page. Yeah. They they thinned his face out, which is always the mark of a better Matt is the thinner face. The cheekbones go higher. The jaw narrows a little bit. And uh, his forehead gets a little taller. And his red hair gets really red. I prefer yeah, really fine. redheaded Matt Murdock when they like tone it down. I'm like, boo. Why is he looking strawberry blonde? Boo. That's not the daredevil yellow I want. I want it back. So yeah, so I, 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 there are parts of the ending where I'm like, yes, thank you for bringing back the right Matt Murdock. But then there's other parts of it where I'm like, we have 0.5 seconds to finish this. Well, The good news is we are heading toward better issues month by month as Mm -hmm. Stanley continues to grow his pencil on Daredevil. And until next time, when we face down another classic Daredevil yellow issue, everybody, we'll see you next time. Stay fearless. Stay fearless. I forgot how to set it up. No, what what happened was is that we normally say our names again at the end. Oh, she's right. (laughs) And you guys can find me being fearless on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N forgetting to say my own name. And you can find the duality of Tori Sheehan at Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SMTori. That's Tori with an I. Nico, what are we saying? Okay, now I think everybody should stay fearless. Stay fearless.
Hey everybody, welcome back to the Billy Club, the show where we take a look at the adventures of Marvel's Crimson Crusader month after month through his many early appearances. Yes, and even though he's a little more yellow today, we've got a whole color spectrum going on because who are we facing today, Nico? Oh, we are facing none other than Kilgrave the Purple Man. The Purple Man, the Grapist, oh. the, the Lavender Lucky Lad. Yeah, I mean, he is, it's one of those things where like, I feel sometimes when we're talking about, especially sort of the earliest stories about Daredevil, one of the things that comes up a lot is sort of how unfocused the narrative might've been early on and how, because of that, so little of the identity of the book from the earliest days carries forward you know, we're going to come up against a lot of villains that are best left in the past, but Stan Lee, Joe Orlando, Vince Coletta, and S. Rosen really crafted a villain here that reverberates through the world of Daredevil to this very fucking minute. And that is... Oh, yeah. Because who can forget the stunning turn in Jessica Jones by David Tennant? I mean... Jessica! Just... Can you, can you even, and I love his villain name. I love the name Kilgrave, A plus, extra cheesy, so great. So but great. like, I think the, uh, his, his introduction on the second page, like the adjectives they pull out where they're like, he's offbeat, far out, ding dong, rootin', tootin', crackerjack. I'm like, oh my God, 1964 called and they are here to stay. And, you know, it is sort of an issue that I think grabs you right away, especially with this cover. Something I've really enjoyed is our dissections of the covers. Mm -hmm. And this cover gives us a lot to talk about. You know, I think sometimes in an effort to highlight the ways in which Daredevil is yellow and red, but early on, they, you know, we talk about yellow Daredevil. We should call it yellow and black Daredevil because... Yeah. There is so much black on this costume that this cover logo, this Here Comes Daredevil, the Man yes. Without Fear, in that black and red, set against basically, you know, a lilac statue of Kilgrave atop the roof with mm -hmm. the craziest perspective makes him look huge considering how big the building is. Like, yeah. there is so much spectacular to this cover that I can't get over. I think this is a terrific cover. I think it's fantastic. I think it's super dynamic, the way that Karen is posed, the way that Daredevil is reaching. It's just, it's a, it's a beautiful perspective and really just draws your eye up to Kilgrave. Like everything is pointing at Kilgrave in this, in this cover. It's, it's gorgeous. And there's a sense of almost helplessness to Daredevil and Karen. They are both very sort of <sighs> reaching yes. out and that's kind of fascinating because if you're taking a look at this cover, you might not know what's going on. It could almost look as though Kilgrave has dropped them or, mm -hmm. you know, there is very much a sense of they are powerless and he is in a position of grand authority. And I feel like because of that, it kind of offsets the fact that there are more letters than there is Daredevil on this cover. What do you mean? S. Rosen had to earn his paycheck. Oh my gosh. And the man really did. If he got paid per letter. <laughs> oof, wow. 
dude can buy a small lot, very incised nation. Yeah. Because this is, you know, the world calls him the purple man. What is the strange power of this incredible human? A power which none are able to resist. None save Daredevil, the sensational blind spot swashbuckler. Don't miss the great new letter section in this issue. Here comes Daredevil, the man without fear, approved by the comics code. Like, I know I read literally every word on the cover, but yeah. because there weren't that many fucking words on the cover! There's so many of them. And this is what we keep talking about, that the 1960s were really like, it was still like a, a written form of, of media. That now it has very much become a visual media where the words are there just in case you're not getting the visuals quite right. And yeah. this is a time when it was, it felt like every instant is, has narration over it. And so I can very much see why people, you know, would say that comics are still reading you know you could you can make a back and forth argument about some of them now but comics for in the 60s really were like it takes time to go through these it's a novella and yeah. it's really intense it's something that i recently for our series partner show x is for podcast I wanted to do a comparative read of a comic that existed in one form and got adapted into an infinite comic form. And I actually found reading Shang-Chi one through five in physical form from 2021. And then it's adapted into infinite comic scrolling style in an eight part series. Reading those side by side still takes me less time than does preparing for an episode of this. And, you know, it really is word count. I feel sometimes like one issue has the word count of a trade now. And it's something that stands out because there's still so much page space wasted here. And like, I'm not trying to be critical of my heroes here. I, I'm being respectfully critical of my heroes here. But holy shit, while I love the effect, that the interior page has creating mm -hmm. a contrast to the cover with the Kilgrave, the, the unbelievable. The yeah, it looks like a take on the Daredevil logo. And that's why that black and red was so important on this cover. And then there's the big Daredevil still looking kind of helpless in mm -hmm. what I can only assume is a cape or a backpack because this yep. is where perhaps the coloring with the black and the red maybe fails just a little bit by today's editorial color standards. Yeah, right? I'm pretty sure this is where we get the where we get the backpack moment is uh, yeah. is in this episode. So, and I love the use of color blocking for these figures. One of the things that definitely makes the purple man stand out is he looks like a kind of like a quick color figure. We all have, you know, our experience in coloring on this show, actually. Tori, myself, and our producer and editor, Kevo, who makes all of our amazing graphics and does all of our incredible visuals. Uh, the three of us have all flatted our comic book at one point or another. And we've all had those characters where we're like, oh, I could just fill this guy all in blue. Yes. He's in the black. He's and... all blue. <laughs> <laughs> and so we all have that that's person. Fine. And that's Kilgrave. That's yeah. a couple of the people on this front page. And that's one of the ways in which I think Kilgrave and Daredevil really kind of fuck with the comic medium. Yeah, and I also think, uh, I mean, I know this is probably not what they were thinking, but I do still continue to come back to the idea that 70s 
some of the colors in Daredevil are exaggerated or broader, less detailed, because Matt doesn't have that visual capacity in the same way that that other heroes have. And I'm sure it's much more of a psychedelic 60s uh, rushing, rushing for deadlines kind of thing. But you, you know, you, we could put that lens onto it today that that is there. And, you know, I think over the years, a number of these books have been retouched, recolored, whether mm -hmm. you're reading it on Marvel Unlimited or you're reading it digitally. I mean, I know I read it on my tablet. I love being able to read on my tablet. I'm a really big fan. Exactly. It makes scrolling through really easy. But I also keep my omnibus edition handy. I like checking to see if there's changes between the original. Uh, I like to keep a change log where possible. I unfortunately, my Daredevil collection doesn't really kick in until like 1971, uh, mm. around there. And from there, it's pretty unbroken uh, from right around the first appearance of Bullseye on. So I can start comparing the physical editions for original. And I do that with the Millers a lot. But you know, these colors are super saturated and they are very kind of eye-catching because I love your use of broad and I feel like it's really exemplified by the bank sequence that sits on Marvel Unlimited digital pages three, four, and five. Mm -hmm. That sort of whole transitioning sequence there. It's not just the pop of pink on the people out on the street or the vivid blues that get used inside the bank. It's also this maroon teller and I think that that really creates a sense of saturated contrast. Yes, you start to feel like Kilgrave might be purple, but he's not noticeably purple. Yeah. He's not, he's not um, that creepy creature from the McDonald's commercials. Grimace. He's not, yes, he's not Grimace. He's not Barney. Like he's just, like you'd look at him and you'd be like, you look a little weird, bud, are you okay? Because everything else is so deeply saturated that that light pale purple that he is really seems like it's not as noticeable as it, as it should be if we were to see a purple person walking down the street. It's got echoes of sort of like 1950s horror, MGM, roadside. He might transform into a vampire. He this might is transform Boris into a wolf. Karloff. This yeah. is everything Stage that like, yes, yes. You definitely feel that. And like he has a panache, he has a style. Like sometimes it feels like Kilgrave actually just is like very good at sweet talking, very good at convincing that he could just be a con man. And I'll get into what I think Kilgrave could have actually like become super great at later. But the the extra add-on of of the of the mind manipulation almost feels like like gilding the lily. Like he has these skills anyway, but then he can take it to that next level because of these powers that he has. And you know, I love that as a transition into the issue because the thing that strikes me right away is Purple Man is such a legend in the Marvel Universe. Not only is he a central figure throughout Daredevil, literally through to 2022, this year he has already made appearances in Daredevil's sphere, right? But he is the defining villain of Jessica Jones and Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos. Along, frankly, you know, it's impossible to talk about that book without giving David Mack credit for the journal that he produced that is such a central element to a huge chunk of that uh, for coming home. So, you know, Purple Man 
defines those characters. His daughter is a member of Alpha Flight, and that ain't no shit to take a stick at. Like that's legitimate. That's Alpha fucking Flight, right? And it's I Canada, feel, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. It's uh, Wolverine's team. Nice. Yeah. It's so it's so it's my faves, and yeah. <laughs> uh, and I really feel like there is something so central about who this character is and how well I know his powers. In 1988 or 89, there was a Marvel graphic novel, which was the name for like, whenever they wanted to release like a hundred page big boy, you know, mm-hmm. with like the extra trim in. So he's like a chunky big boy, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever they wanted to drop one of those, they would call it a Marvel graphic novel. And there's one called Emperor Doom, where Doom amplifies and uses Kilgrave's power to take over everyone in the world. Like, Kilgrave is so fucking strong. I don't understand how he just kind of gets arrested. I know, like that's the thing is I, I had written down. I was like, I was like, how does he not? How does he get arrested? And then I was like, oh right, we have to get to the point where Matt has to be a lawyer for the guy he's fighting at night, and so he has to get arrested. Sorry, like that's the thing is that this very much still has like those TV tropes of where like. Sometimes you just have to close your eyes and say the plot has to happen. The plot has to happen. And uh, this is definitely one of those moments because there's no way in hell Kilgrave should have should have gotten arrested. Not in a million years. He should have walked away scot-free, never to be seen again. And I feel like that's one of the things that they don't quite have down about Kilgrave yet. And I know we were discussing this in the, what I feel like we should call the Red Room, right? <gasps> Wait, no. Oh, Oh. Uh, well, you know what? From the dark room? 80, the dark room? The dark room. I like it. Because from issue 82 to issue 125, the red room he's, is going to have a very a different room. meaning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we were talking in the dark room before mm-hmm. the show got going. And I don't want to say something too sinister that belies my internet search history. But for me, Kilgrave works better when he's better looking. He can't be like you know, Chris Evans, good looking. Yes. He can't be, you know, that out of control, you know, stunning, but he should be at least Robert Downey Jr. Very handsome. Yeah. You know, it, that, that David Tennant was a great casting, maybe a little scarecrowsier than I would have gone myself, but the Netflix, the Netflix aesthetic for Jessica Jones was a leaner machine then I maybe would have gone with on the whole, but it still is a terrific show and definitely worth the watch. So I don't know. How do you feel? Because I know I'm a little bit playing into some welcome to the dollhouse tropes where yeah. I'm like, let's pick our sexual attacker here. Right. Like that's the thing is that if you want it to be, I, I, I think in these early issues, it's not a hundred percent because he seems to be, only using his powers selectively. He's not constantly turning them on. He has to be able to walk through life and be treated a certain way anyway. And so for that, you do need a certain amount of attractiveness. Now, in the 60s, the average attractiveness also had to deal with status and like how you dressed and how you behaved. And so like he could, like, I don't want to say he has to be at least as handsome as Foggy, but like he doesn't, he doesn't need to be more than like striking. He has to be I, striking. Yeah. And when you take him too far over that edge, I imagine we will probably see him being using his powers more, the more handsome 
or aesthetically pleasing he becomes. And also that we'll probably see him becoming slightly more sympathetic the more handsome he becomes. Yeah, and like, you know, right now, and when you said should look like Foggy, that really shut me like right. Like I was like, I'm done. There's nothing more to be said. Right. That is like the explanation. Yeah. Like, he right needs now, he, to be. Yeah. And right now he looks like a Darren on Bewitched, but he should be looking like an astronaut on I Dream of Genie. And it's not so much that I feel that without being more attractive, Kilgrave is less effective, but by making him less attractive, I feel it plays into some ugly stereotypes that I don't necessarily need. Him being kind of schlubby makes he, it a schlubby guy using mind control love potions. And I don't care for that. Yeah, there is something to be said about the bushiness of his eyebrows, the hairline that he has, the distinctive chin and nose that is verging on I want to say anti-Semitic stereotypes. A little um, Eastern European thrown in there, yeah. It, it very much feels like the beginnings of vampire novels back in the 19th century where they really were just trying to like say to women, hey, you love reading and you love these handsome, mysterious men who, who take you away to their sudden dukedom. But here's the thing, they're fucking creepers and they're going to help you murder babies. So like, don't go near them. And so like they, they, they enhance those features of like, of these kind of, yeah, Eastern European looks. And I think that that is something that is very 1960s about it, but like we look at it today and like, I find it very striking. We find it very like Boris Karloff, very like vampiric and, and Hollywood monstery. But I imagine it's possible that back in the day, this might've had a more chilling or creepy or off-putting effect upon the reader. And it actually had a similar effect on me for a lot of the same reasons you're saying. I found that specifically, there's like a tonal shift once Kilgrave is like, oh, Karen's pretty, I'll have her. And there's such a calmness. Like I can't even imagine him being like, I will take her now. Like yes. he's just kind of like, I'll have her, all right. And right. There's Which is also sort of how I imagine Foggy hired her, where he was like, blonde, legs, you're in. Yeah, there's a there's a simpleness to his sinister. Mm -hmm. There's a, a calmness that, like, if you're asking me who's more horrifying, you know, between, like, the Joker and Kingpin, I'm inclined to say the Kingpin, because the Kingpin is going to crush your head with a car door, wipe his hands, and go back to work, whereas the Joker is going to cackle maniacally and play in the blood, and so he's not that threatening for the next two hours. He's got some entrails right. to keep him happy. Yes. But, you know, there's something so sick about how Kilgrave is portrayed as so capable of doing this and then blending into society. I love all of your parallels to Foggy because it's as if Kilgrave parallels Foggy and Purple Man parallels Daredevil. Yes. Yes, and specifically Daredevil, not specifically Matt. I 100%. would also I would also say that uh, going along with what you said, I feel that uh, 
Purple Man and Kingpin, I think the believability that you could run into someone who could secretly be a murderer is that is that fear that we have now. Like it, this is this is all kind of before Ted Bundy and before like the serial killing sprees of like the 70s and 80s where people hid for so long. But there were still um, those kinds of stories that were going around that people knew that there were horrific monsters living among us smiling and and serving you your your quarterly reports who were just horrific monsters the moment your back was turned and i think that purple man and and kingpin and a lot of those other ones that we see in in a lot of marvel uh issues uh personify that really well and make it much more believable that you could walk down the street one day and run into one of these guys and not know if you were just going to get the, hey, how you doing, ma'am, or the, I'm going to lead you into this alleyway. And I love that you talk about it like it's, the. I mean, you know, we know that vampires and werewolves, a lot of it was like, you know, gays are coming to pervert your kids and shit. And like, you know, we know that a lot of horror tropes are sort of sourced and stay away from foreigners, mm -hmm. stay away from homosexuals, stay away from, you know, whatever. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> and the 1950s with McCarthyism and the Red Scare destroyed superhero comics for a decade and it was so hard for them to bounce back it's ultimately not shocking it was hard for them to put daredevil in red and make him a red man during this time oh. and i feel like purple man blending in and looking like any one of us but secretly being a color that is looking to make us all sound the same i feel like there is something to be said for the way because, I mean, one of the things that we fall into with these issues is we talk a lot about the introduction and we talk a lot about the ending, but it's that meat in the middle that there's not a whole lot to say about because... Right. It's, it's self-explanatory. It's a lot of punch, punch, punch. And the thing that's so interesting here is initially Purple Man just sort of perverts everyone around him. But once he, you know, like, it's not like a big surprise that like I'm super into like fitness and bodybuilding and like, that's like my thing. I've talked about it already. And so- you I'm know, gonna need fact, some proof, Nico. Oh, well, <laughs> like, um, you know, the, the thing about this ridiculous setup for this story is that Daredevil goes to some pretty unique places pretty frequently between the gym and the boxing matches. There's a lot of excess male testosterone in this book pretty consistently so that the conversation between Matt and Foggy that introduces Matt's awareness of Foggy's attraction to Karen, which in many ways is sort of an alpha testosterone driven discussion. They're talking yes. about the woman that they each seem to think is marked like I, Matt doesn't seem to think he's marked Karen, but he seems to think Foggy has, and he's okay with the, I mean, it's like that part of that bro code of like, oh, my bro's into this chick, I'd better back off. Like, but it, but there is like a certain amount of extra to it because it feels like she's not in on that. And she's currently and, under another person's thrall. Yeah. Yeah. For this Max. all to be juxtaposed with the the bodybuilding, the kind of like, because there's gyms and then there's a bunch of dudes standing around in posers. 
-hmm. And that's very different. And there is something so the overwhelming masculinity of owning a woman, of bodybuilders, of everyone around you doing what you say based on your smell. Like, I mean, in a perfect world, I would always smell like a steak and whiskey. That is like the ultimate scent. And like, I would be thrilled, but like, Cool. oh man your face there but like, <laughs> that's great <laughs> well it's better than a locker room you know so but like there is something so playing into alpha masculine tropes throughout this issue and one of the things that makes that really stand out is how not alpha masculine Kilgrave is he's yeah. you know he does have a lot of features like we've said that are very masculine features and, and fit into this codified era but He's just kind of a dude who just kind of wound up with powers, who just kind of has a powerful smell, makes people do what he wants. He gets defeated by a bedsheet. Like mm -hmm. there's something that really in so many ways is the setup for what will be realized in many years. This is kind of like the way we felt the owl was a really strong setup for who the owl would become. But yet, at the same time, it's kind of further away because who the Purple Man is today is not comics codable. Who yeah. the Purple Man is today would not fit the 1960s definition of an appropriate story for comic books. So he's so much further than the Owl while still being thematically luscious to his story. I agree. I definitely agree. I think so much of what he does is behind the scenes and is tricky and, and feels very Loki-esque in the idea yeah. of, a, of, of, a, of a villain who treads the line of masculinity and the more feminine aspects of working behind the scenes, working less uh, in muscle, working with your mind, being very tricky and, and playing with the lines and graying areas that I think that um, it's, it's one of those things where we have to see Matt go up against extremely masculine, toxic, I, toxic villains and prove himself the smarter one. But then when he comes up against these ones that are smarter, he has to be, he has to play the brute. Yeah. to prove his masculinity. And I feel like we'll probably see that quite often is that after a couple of like Rock'em Sock'em uh, villains that are, that are very punchy and, and, and brutish and muscles, we will get a, a thinker's man where we get to see Daredevil be the muscle so that we can be like, oh, right, right, right. He can do both. It's cool. It's cool. And I think that's part of why they love to find reasons that the lawyer stuff even fits in because for all that it matters, considering that Karen and Matt and Foggy just walk into supervillainy every third minute, you know what I mean? Every fifth page is they just stumbled upon a robbery. I don't know that I needed them to be Kilgrave's lawyers. I don't think I ever need them to be the villain's lawyer. <laughs> but we have 22 pages to fill and we can't punch everyone. Sometimes we gotta go to court. Sometimes we and, gotta punch them with justice. Right? And so like, that's the thing is that like watching you know, watching these crowd scenes where they're overwhelming Daredevil. I mean, this is definitely one of the first issues where I felt like Matt might not win the day yeah. or that like 
he might get Karen back, but Kilgrave's going to escape and like take everything with him. Like, I don't feel like this is going to be even a half win like the owl was. Um, I definitely feel like Matt is not going to win this. And then we get to like this confrontation where Foggy is like, you lost our girl. Why aren't you going out there and getting her? And there is a part of me that's like, remember, Foggy, you think Matt is blind and you want him to go search for your girl, your girl. And so then you fly off in your hot pink suit, which is adorable, Uh, Amazing. amazing, beautiful, amazing. And I'm just like, what are we what are we gaining here beyond this like we got to push the love triangle forward like I feel like a lot of these issues we just have beats that we have to hit we have to push the love triangle forward two inches we have to make sure we have a little we have a side of lawyering so that we get the duality of Matt's nature we have to have uh you know, Matt using his brains and his brawn as daredevil. We have to have Karen being a damsel in distress. And I think that this one, much like the Owl episode, gets to hit all of those and still somehow be interesting even 40 years later. 40, yeah. 50 years? 50 years later. 60. Wow, yeah. Pushing 60. Fuck. So, yeah. So, that, I just, I feel like these these gems are so interesting i mean it's a beautiful work by by the artists like the definition on these guys the amount of work that go that that went into inking these things no digital tools oh girl i do not envy these folks um i think that it's it's a very interesting choice and i also think that this was the point where i started to be like you know kilgrave you you could have run the world Like, you could have full-on fucking, like, become president. Because the thing is, like, even though when he leaves, like, his little mind control walks away, but if he put it more into the power of suggestion and the power of uh, convincing people what he wants, uh, I really think, like, he could have just, like, been fucking president and fucked some shit up or a powerful judge or a mayor, or like uh, a guy who runs a company that convinces everyone to take a really shitty acquisition offer. Like, and this is where he chose to go. I think it's always important to remember that Kilgrave lacks drive. Mm. He is just very selfish. And it's, I think kind of represented in the idea of the ownership of women between these characters. And, you know, I, I felt like maybe we were projecting some gendering into this story that wasn't there. But, you know, mm. I get to that last page. I get to that last fucking line of dialogue. And it's Karen saying, I guess I'm just a silly female. And if there was anything that really hit home how much this story is pushing gender roles, is pushing this notion that there's, you know, masculine, feminine, there's brawn, there's brains, there's this duality, how out of their way they go to call him the man without fear, the purple man. And then there's, I'm a silly female, right? Like, it really is about creating this duality that 
really imposes some strict gender roles on these characters, especially when Karen's the only named woman in the issue. Yep. Yep. Um, do you feel like because of Matt's disability that he gets sort of sidelined from this duality of, of genderisms? I feel like very often because Matt's abilities are you know, specifically kind of radar Z and he doesn't have enhanced strength. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like a thing, you know, Spider-Man has a radar power, but he has enhanced strength, right? So he's got those big rippling muscles. He's got that big body. You know, we always get that Spider-Man transformation shirtless sequence in the movies, right? Now, as buff as, you know, Charlie Cox is and looking gorgeous, right? He <laughs> isn't like a, a brawler, you know? Right. And so there was that Hawkeye initiative that drew heroes, uh, that drew Hawkeye in more uh, femininely posed yes. hero stances. In the ridiculous superheroine stances, yes. But they really couldn't do that to Daredevil because that just looked like Sorry, a regular yeah. Daredevil cover. Yeah. yeah. It didn't look any different at all. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a little bit that he's known as like the acrobat of the sky because the same thing happens to Dick Grayson where because Dick Grayson always puts his ass over his head, everyone's always drawn Dick Grayson with his ass over his head. So it's kind of a thing. I wonder if, because yeah, we definitely like, just to, to, to be that guy for like a second, over the years, you do see Daredevil get a little too big for his own good uh, under Scott McDaniel uh, circa 1993's fall from grace and then oh, going wow. into the uh, tree of knowledge era he's kind of roided out he looks kind of captain america like for about five years there it's too big and as much as i'm like a big muscle guy that's too big muscle on daredevil without any explanation of his size so you know, you do see eras where he's a little too big. And then sometimes like during the crime noir years, he gets a little Batman sized, but I don't know. I think it's a really good question. And I think uh, it really does play into how much of Daredevil is always going to be overcoming the insecurities of being the skinny kid that got beat up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. I mean, there is a, we, uh, it's so interesting. Like you said, we, we concentrate so much on the beginning and then so much on the ending. But um, I really wanted to draw our attention to page, I think it's 14 in here, um, that there was a, that like a lot of these pages in here could sometimes be like these gorgeous splash pages. Oh, like when he's when he's running through the city kind of looking for Karen and the, his huge shadow, shadow is over, over the, the skyscape. Yeah. Like that would be an enormous splash page just in the middle of everything these days. And to see it so like squished down into the bottom third, I'm like, oh no, we had, we could have had it all. Um, but I really like that we get, um, I mean, we get more silly goons. We get a little bit of backstory, which like is similar to, we didn't get a whole lot of Leland. So like, this is really the first like villain origin story that we really see yeah. in Daredevil. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm very interested to see. And I'm also interested in the fact that like the court system is just gonna accept that he can fuck with people's minds. And I'm and just like- fine. 
That's just, I was like, I was like the amount that people could now claim like, oh no, I have powers of mind control and uh, they, they must have mind controlled me, Captain. Like, I, I can't, I can't imagine that world. No. Like, and absolutely ridiculous. And I think that's part of why Daredevil is such a great character for Purple Man, because it's always going to be that kind of, and I, I hate to use this term, but it's always going to kind of be that like, he said, purple, she said kind of thing. And there's a, a real hard line to walk there that I think Daredevil is the best character for. Yeah. Yeah. Because I do think that like involving the law and Matt's own duality and his own issues, I think is makes makes it so Purple Man is less. It's not that he's less frightening, but that he seems manageable. Yeah. For it. Because there are other smart people because like purple man if he just like gets punched in the face is fucking done but that's not how daredevil runs so we get like this this interesting like back and forth and karen's standing on a ledge and it's all just very drama 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 all the time this is where i really felt the like soap opera-ness yeah and I feel because we're still so focused on creating that drama, 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 we don't get anything about how this is Matt's will that allows him to overcome the purple man. Yes. And it's something only like 10 people in the world can fucking do. Yes. And it just doesn't come up. Right. Cause they're like, they're, he's like, uh, oh, I guess, well, we'll get into that next episode on how uh, Daredevil usually can't, can handle hypnotism, no sweat, because normally no sweat. it's a visual hypnotism, but this isn't because Kilgrave has like pheromones or something that affect people. And so that's like, A, how we catch him and B, how Daredevil is like, could be put under, but just, he's so strong. It's all that Catholic will inside of him. Yeah, I guess. And the 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 devil, the radar deviling. I'm gonna try and angle my head under this. See, it's the, it's the devil horns, right? <laughs> devil horns are just a broken halo, honey. Yeah, right. Seriously. And I feel like we had the fixer who's nobody, and then we had Electro who is nobody to Daredevil. Right. And then we had the owl who's somebody. He's and somebody. Purple man who is or somebody. Yeah, this is his definitely most dangerous villain and I can see why people keep coming back to it because there is so much potential for terror and so much potential for going real grim dark real quick with this guy that I'm sure the 90s took full advantage of, so. But then after this, we have Matador and I feel like we kind of lose our way again for a hot minute. Daredevil really is an up and down road and I feel like this issue is a great example of all the good stuff about classic Daredevil mm -hmm. and a, still a smattering of the stuff that makes me go, why? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely, we're, we're pushing closer to where we want to be than we definitely. were on like issues one and two, um, but it's still 1964 and we're still bi-monthly. So also we have to remember that since the beginning, it has now been eight months and we've had four different issues of Daredevil. 
That's crazy. Like, I don't, I don't know how people like, cause, cause so as a person who's never gone inside of a comic book shop and gets very upset when she learns that they just don't keep all of the issues there. Um, I can't imagine being someone trying to get into daredevil when it like barely shows up and takes forever. And I guess you must want this, this level of cheesiness. Like maybe you're like, I love Spider-Man, yeah. but it's just too intense. I needed something a little lighter. And that's, that's definitely the subject of our next episode where we swing on over to the webhead himself for an examination of Amazing Spider-Man 16, which is a crossover with Daredevil. And so I'm a completionist. And for years, I was so set on having every goddamn appearance of everybody organized. And when I say Daredevil is on two panels of Amazing Spider-Man 18. Panels is generous. Yeah, I mean. Generous. We've officially talked more about his appearances in 18 than his appearances in 18 total. So can't wait to talk about it for an entire episode. But until then, I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Tori Sheehan. You can find me on Instagram at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. And until next time. Stay, Stay fearless. fearless. You got it right that time. We did. <laughs>